when I was very young, uh, I will tell you, I, I want no part of uh, sex crimes prosecutions. I think they're vitally important. Uh, hats off to those that do it. But uh, I, I remember I was second chairing uh, an, a, a sex crimes prosecutor who's tremendous, uh, the first assistant there. And it was uh, early on, and uh, the guy was a police officer. And when the jury acquitted the guy, it's a swearing match. You know, I didn't do it. And he comes in as a detective, and I never did this stuff. When, when we came back, and I see that kid's eyes fill up with tears, and, and back in the, the victim witness room, and he said, are they saying it didn't happen? And we're, you know, I mean, what do you say to that? And he was, I don't know, about 10 years old. And his, and he said, I don't care. I don't ever want to see him again. And his eyes are, he's just devastated. And I hated that. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Boy, Murph is in for a surprise this week. Two Midwest farm boys, good God-fearing, rifle-carrying Christian farmer farm boys, are ganging up on you, Murph. <laughs> oh, I know who the one is. Who's the other? Uh, Brian Server. He's going <laughs> to be our guest this week, but we're going to talk about him in a minute. But hey, guys, everybody, welcome back. This is going to be a fun, another fun episode. I am Morgan Wright, your host with the most, with the most hair. You know, all that good stuff. Literally here with my partner in crime. Murph. Welcome back, everybody. Glad to have you with us. Yeah, hey, and look, um, this is going to be a good one. But before we do that, let's just get through our quick housekeeping that we always do because it says it in the script. So head on over to Apple and Spotify. Give us those five stars. We really appreciate it. You know, your comments. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you want to see changed. But either way, we hear about it through the Apple and Spotify reviews. Just head on over there. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got everything there. We've got our book list, our merch list. Um, and in fact, any pictures that go with this, we always put it up on the episode page and we've got a book we're going to talk about this week as well. And also follow us on social media at that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes uh, podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But I'm telling you where you got to be. You got to be over on our Patreon channel. And let me tell you why, Murph. I know you're interested, tell right? You want to know why? I was curious. Why? Right, here's, here's, here's how to order. Here's how you do it, right? Because we've got a lot of good stuff coming out. We are just, we just put out episode 14 of the real DEA Narcos, talking about the real DEA Narcos Cali edition, the 15th and final installment, a two hour uh, <laughs> epic Dang. episode is coming out in the end. And this is where we tie everything up. But I'm telling you folks, between what we did with you, Murph and JP on uh, Pablo, what we did with Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell on the Cali cartel, you will not hear this detail anywhere. Not books, not movies, not podcasts. There's only one place you can find it. And that's here. And we do stuff too. Like we analyze 911 calls, find out if people are being truthful or deceptive, what's going on there. Uh, we've got our Narcometer where we review uh, your movies that you pick and we give you our in-depth review um, and our case of the month. You know, last month we did the one about the uh, six shootings out in California, the influence of the cartel, what's been going on. So that was interesting. And then, uh, you know, if you are at our Warden of the Throne level, we do a special video time just for you guys. So all great stuff. Visit us at patreon.com slash game of crimes and, uh, you know, share one, tell one. Right. So absolutely. You know, yeah, of course, absolutely. You know, and just remember, folks, uh, you know, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but, you know, we never take ourselves serious. 
We're going to have some fun. And one of the ways to have fun is head on over to our Game of Crimes fan page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. You know, Salute. she's connected to the mob because her name ends in a vowel, especially, you know, Soprano, Salvato, you know, hey. And whatever you do, don't make fun of her accent. Don't make fun of her Joey Z accent. All right. <laughs> uh, just to answer a couple easy questions. We, If you are deemed worthy, you can go behind the curtains and have all the fun with us. So head on over to Facebook, look up Game of Crimes fans. And you will be uh, entered into that. But before we do that too, Steve, we kind of been changing things up. We were doing small town police water, but now we do what we call case of the week. We're just talking about something that's popped up and uh, give a couple of our tidbits thoughts about it. So you ready for it? I'm ready. So one of the most famous faces on true crime. And when you think of Dateline, who's one of the people you think of that reports on true crime? Uh, no idea. Keith Morrison. What okay. do you mean no idea? I don't know who that is. Keith Morrison, he's got that very poetic, sing-songy voice and that thing about Pam. You oh, know? yeah, yeah, the white-haired guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. See, you know who he is. I just didn't know his name. Well, you know, but this is something you and I have talked about before, and it's it, this is one of the reasons why we like to do first-person interviews. People who were actually there, people who did it, not people who read about right. it, not people who researched it and, and wrote a book about it, even though many of our guests have wrote a book because they were there. But we talk about, you know, people who are just, you know, who report the bad things that happen to other people. And here's, so Steve, I came across this article and I thought it'd be good just to talk about real quick. Dateline's Keith Morrison admits he struggles with the ethics of reporting on true crime. You know, and it, so it was interesting. He said it's a staple uh, of the network, NBC's Dateline having been on the air. Now, I didn't realize this for 31 seasons. Wow. I didn't either. It was yeah, it was a general news program, but it, today it reigns. It really is. It's like it's top of the game. It reigns as the king of true crime, even in a market that has arguably come oversaturated. I kind of agree with that. Between many of the true crime podcasts and documentaries, uh, Dateline has still managed to carve out a large space for itself. And, you know, one of the things about Dateline is Keith Morrison. Um, of all the correspondents, here's what the New Yorker said. They described Morrison as the most verbally gifted of them all due to his poetic nature. The outlet added, he seems to revel in the form, and we in turn revel in him. His podcast series, including Killer Roll, feel like a chance to float around in the warm bath of his voice. So, you know, um, but here's the thing he struggled with, and this thing we struggled with, too, on Doing Our Stuff. He says, with the rise of true crime shows... Morrison revealed that he understands his perspective and even struggles with it. Here's his quote. I sort of had to be dragged into the murder business. It just didn't seem right somehow. We were taking these intensely affecting, deeply personal incidents in people's lives and making entertainment from them. Right. Uh, uh, you know, and that's that's the only ethical thing I could come up with because it, the, everything else is you just report the facts, you report what you have, and <clears throat> you know, let people make up their own minds. Yeah, I mean, so how do you balance with the need to want to tell a story? And because it is, if it's not entertaining, people don't want to listen. And and for some reason, why are murders some of the most fascinating things? I mean, some of our stuff deals with murders, but some of our stuff deals with um, sexual offenses. Some of our stuff deals with um, human trafficking. Um, some of our stuff deals with uh, drug cases, you know, and so we kind of cross the border. But for some reason, it seems murders uh, and true crime stuff is what everybody seems to gravitate to. Well, and I think the difference between us and, and Keith is, you know, we're bringing the, uh, the heroes on, on the show here to tell their own stories. And our purpose is to present law enforcement uh, the way they really should be viewed by the world, that they're just out there trying to help people protect those who don't have the means or the ability to protect themselves, you know, and show the sacrifices and the dedication that, that's involved with true law enforcement professionals. 
So I think that's, you know, it's not that we highlight crimes. We highlight the people that are out there doing the job more than what they do on, on Dateline. Yeah, and he, he talked about a little bit more. He said about he does worry about the exploitative aspects of the crime. He said he recalled a time when he had to drive up to a widow's house just shortly after her husband's passing, recalling that he felt like the worst person in the world. Yet what he found surprised him, for she invited him in, gave him food and drink, chatted with him. He told the L.A. Times that this was when he realized that the show had the power to allow ordinary people to tell their stories. You know, maybe the way Keith's doing it a little bit different, the thing that just irritates the holy piss out of me is when you get these reporters right after there's been a terrible tragedy, a shooting or whatever, and, the, and they want to go visit them because they, to them, people who are crying on camera is gold. How does that make you feel? What do you think? What do you want to say to the person? I can tell you it's the standard stock. What do you want to say to the person who killed you? What should we do about this? I mean, they don't care about telling the story. What they care about, I think, is ratings. And that's, I think, storytelling, of course, he's after it for the ratings, but I would prefer to hear a story. And walk through the stuff, you know, and interview everybody as opposed to sticking a microphone in somebody's face and going, how does this make you feel? Man, I am with you so much that we, I mean, we see it every day. The media will sensationalize anything to bring in more viewers, which results in more advertisers, which brings a you know, larger profit to the, to the stations and the networks. And if it's a slow news day, then they'll sensationalize the weather. If, you know, if there's no tragedies to report. Can falling rain kill a, you? Tune in at 10. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when it was getting cold here in Florida, well, it's winter. You know, it, it gets cold in the United States in winter. Not so cold here Just in Florida. Just got to watch for those falling iguanas, the falling lizards or whatever they are. Yeah, that's kind of funny. <laughs> Don't pick but, them up. They're going to be fine. Just leave them alone. Yeah, but just a perfect example. Example, And this isn't true of all news networks, all media networks, but it seems like the vast majority, It's it, you know, it fits the bill for them. It does. Well, I'll leave you with this last part. What he says, he says that dealing with the subject matter every week is exhausting uh, as the travel. But in the end, he says it's worth it. You get involved in the details and you talk to the people involved and you hear what the real issues are behind the stories. It's so interesting that you can't possibly stay away from it. Well, maybe. It, I mean, it is interesting. People do want, you know, today's age, everybody wants to know what's going on. There's, there's you know, they want to know what the top secrets are the United States, what our nuclear arsenal is all about, and all the other crap that goes on. It's like, hey, wait a minute, Steve, have you checked your garage for classified documents? Have you looked in your house for classified documents? Do you have any classified documents you're in possession of you would like to admit on this world-famous, globally-renowned podcast? I have no comment, Your Honor. No comment. I I know nothing. I know nothing. I tell you what, if you're a politician and you're not checking to see if you've got classified documents, you're an idiot. <laughs> no, here's the other thing, too. If you're a politician and you're checking for classified documents, you're an idiot just simply because of the fact you're checking for it. Those things never should have left right. what they call the SCIF. It's pretty marked. It's marked. T-S, S-C-I, T-K, no form, whatever it is. You got the headers on there that tell you, this thing is classified. It stays in this room. Don't do not do a Sandy burglar and stuff stuff in your underwear or your sock and walk out and say, oh, it was inadvertent. There's nothing inadvertent about removing, no matter what party you are, there's nothing inadvertent about removing classified material from a secure location. If you and I did that, we would be charged. Yep. Dude, we'd be perp walked. We'd be in orange. There you go. Enough bitching, right? All righty. All right. That's into the reading for today. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. So we got to get to this now. Let's get to this next part, Steve, because this one's a good one. Good God-fearing, right-wing, rough-carrying Christian farm boy from the great Midwest, Brian Serber. And again, our buddy Wayne Stinnett hooked us, hooked a brother up. He hooked us up. Oh, man. And I got an email from, uh, or I got a text message from Wayne last night. He's already got another one for us. <laughs> Love it, Wayne. Keep them coming, brother. So, well, hey, 
I just teed you up, Murph. So tell us about Brian Serber. Well, here's a guy who, uh, as you'll see, is rather energetic. Uh, he knows how to set his sights on a goal and achieve that goal. Uh, got into school, decided to become an attorney, hanging out with the cops, realized he liked being a cop. So he went to be a cop. So uh, now he is the deputy director of Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, right? I think I got that right, Brian. I hope I said it right. Um, and I had the honor, Hummer and I had the honor of speaking to the Association of Oklahoma Narcotics Enforcement Officers um, the first year of COVID. It's one of the few places we traveled that year. Uh, these guys treated us like family. They treated us like one of their own, which is what I love about the law enforcement culture. You know, that, the biggest thing that you hate when you are not hate, but you miss when you retire from law enforcement is the camaraderie that goes along with it because it truly is a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And these guys invited us in with open arms and that friendship has continued now. And, you know, we've got Brian, you're going to love his story here on some of the th stuff he oh, talks yeah. about, some of the crimes that he's been involved with that he solved. Uh, no, no, no. He was not involved with any crimes. He worked on them. I'm see, letting y'all figure that out. You'll have to listen to the show <laughs> to see what I'm talking about. See, that's a tease to get you to listen more. But yeah, that's right. No. <laughs> now, he does say something we have to clarify as it relates to crime. So it's, I mean, this is, uh, this was an exciting interview. I wasn't real sure how it was going to go with, uh, with a former prosecutor, but I loved it. He's fun. It's good. It's, and I tell you what, well, he's still, yeah, he was a lawyer, was an agent, agent lawyer, and now back to kind of agent running the stuff. But let me tell you, he's also got a book out too. We're going to talk about this too. Injustice for all the, and in parenthesis, familiar fallacies of criminal justice reform it was just released uh just recently i think within the last couple of years we're going to talk about it on the show but murph we can't talk about anything and discuss the tease that you talked about until i ask you the one question are you ready to play the biggest baddest most dangerous and midwest friendly game of all the game of crimes yes sir let's get in sit down shut up and hold on we're here to listen to brian serber and i have one message for you brian and that's go mountaineers All right, guys, this is going to be good because Merce going to be a bit uncomfortable because we got a good Midwest farm boy. Unfortunately, he's from Oklahoma, but uh, which, by the way, Kansas State beat, but pretty much everybody else beat this year in football. So, uh, but hey, well, listen, wait, whoa, 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 we're talking <laughs> well, about football. We'll talk Mention about the shirt I got on. Who who won the championship nah, this year? No, nah, that's, oh, a, and that's they won last year. You got to buy the shirt. You got to buy the shirt with your own money you know before what? we Connie mention went out it. Bought this. She actually bought this shirt, believe it or not. So I'm into free t-shirts, yeah, Brian. With, but uh, you, did, you didn't buy it. Well, let's talk about our guest first, Brian Server. So Brian, Brian from Oklahoma. Oklahoma is okay. Welcome. I appreciate that. Now, I'll tell you that uh, I, I am an Oklahoma State uh, alum. I went to law school at, at uh, OU, but I still bleed orange. And as for Murph, it's not fair. I mean, hell, when you've lived in 15 states, you just get to pick whichever one is a winner. Um, and That's right. I got two things to say. One is go dogs. Sorry, Sandy. And the other is go Mountaineers, which has got beat by everybody in the conference this year, I think. <laughs> Except Oklahoma State. <laughs> ah, well, we had one in there, right? right? I was talking to Wayne about that. Uh, and for our listeners here, we, uh, Brian was introduced to us by Wayne Stinnett. You've heard us mention him before. I think you guys might have a little experience together out there. Um, yes. I had the opportunity to meet these guys prior to COVID. Uh, Javier and I went out and spoke at the A1 conference. The uh, I'll let you explain what A1 is because I'll screw it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, first met Steve and Javier at A- A1 is our, uh, it's an acronym for the Association of Oklahoma Narcotic Enforcers. And so uh, Wayne right now is the immediate past president. Now, when he came out there, I was the president. So I've been just out of the, the leadership in that. But uh, yeah, that, that uh, the A1 has been uh, really just my time uh, uh, there in the on the board and ultimately becoming the president was just really one of those things uh, that was really a, a very rewarding thing. Uh, you don't get confused me. with the steak sauce when you say you're with A1? Uh, well, I mean, you don't. Hines 57, are we going to mention them at all? Or what? That, that's exactly right. Well, um, you know, we, everyone has their, the you know, all the different acronyms they have for all these state associations that we all kind of know. And so there's uh, a lot of them just have the CNOA for California, ANOA for uh, Arkansas. And uh, we just kind of you know, we, just we thinking, put association at the front to kind of give us our own little uh, acronym <laughs> one half. I was just thinking we actually did that uh, the first year of COVID because yeah. we came out to your <laughs> yeah. office, but pretty much everybody was done virtually, right? Yeah, and if you're an Oklahoma football fan, it's AA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was the one year that, that was, I was the president, and uh, uh, we were everyone was kind of canceling, and we actually had ten, two venues moved. They they the venues kept canceling on us. Everybody, this is in August. One is some training, so uh, so we switched and did ours uh, virtually. Did it off of a webinar platform. We had some people. I, I kind of wanted. Uh, I I think in, that uh, it, again. And, and doing kind of the Zoom when you're just talking to a screen, uh, I've, I've t- presented and talked like that. It just has a weird feel. And so I kind of wanted to look like a YouTube video of actually someone giving a lecture. So we had live audiences there for some of the officers and then broadcast wow. it out. And that was our actually our biggest conference ever. I think we had 1,500 that actually that uh, attended that year. And so... <laughs> Yeah, but it's virtual, Murph, so they cut that in half because nobody yeah, has to yeah, travel. No uh, we did. We actually traveled during COVID. That's one of the few times that you, Javier, and I traveled somewhere. Yeah, and that's and that's another thing we did is rather than have people present virtually, we kind of, we actually kind of uh, flew them in just to kind of give it that uh, that feel. So it was uh, yeah to to infect you, Murph, so you would take it back and infect other people. At that time, probably why I got sick was because of you, pal. But uh, you know what it was is is they were looking around. They're like, who are the idiots we could get to fly out here? Oh, Murph and Javier, let's let's call them. <laughs> who are the fools that would fly all the way out here to speak to an empty room? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two, two, two guys whose immune systems are probably so great, COVID was no threat to them. And so, uh, I'll tell you, after you drank most of the shit Murph did, and I know JP did, Aguardiente, and or with the other stuff, I don't think there's anything that's going to bring you down, man. The only thing it's going to be is a gator or that damn dog up the street from your neighbor. I think when I when I die, I'll, I'll be pickled. That's what I'll be. <laughs> well, hey, well, let's let's start with you, Brian. As we always do, think of ours, Cosa Nostra. How did you get started in this? You know, were you just drunk one night hanging outside the Arkansas football, you know, locker room, and deciding you wanted to be a Razorback, and somebody said, "No, stay in Oklahoma and be somebody." <laughs> you know, I I wish I had this kind of uh, early calling. Uh, but I, uh, uh, this has been a, I mean, a profession that's been a blessing, but so for me, I just, I just kind of, uh, fell into it. I was, uh, start off, you know, I went to Oklahoma state and I'm one of those, uh, to tell you how much I plan. I was one of those undecided, uh, freshmen. And, uh, and so I'm just, just kind of going to college cause you're supposed to do that after you graduate high school. And I didn't have, I had no idea. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll be a veterinarian, going to business, had no idea. And I, my first year took political science and I thought, 
uh, hell, that's a that's a degree. I mean, I enjoyed that. So I just said I'll major in political science because it was uh, was fun because when you're 18, 22 is a, is a lifetime away. Uh, then I, you know, get to I'm going to graduate. And then it's not exactly like uh, there's a demand for people that, with a political science degree. Hell, I got a, I've majored it. I don't even know what political science is. It's just kind of talking about stuff. Uh, but it's interesting. And so uh, at that point, I'm thinking, do I get an MBA? Do I get a master's in public administration? Or just do I go to law school? Because a lot of people were like this, I'll go be pre-law. And I wasn't like a pre-law guy. I just, like, I don't know what else to do. So uh, I go to law school, really was not thinking of even practicing law. I, I kind of wanted to use it as a, uh, a background and kind of get into business. Well, hold on a second. You see, you, you're skipping over a lot of stuff. <laughs> we got to understand how much trouble you got to while you were in college because you went to Oklahoma State. Right. You had the Red River rivalry. You had stuff going on. Come on, pal. You had to get in trouble at one of the football games. Come well, on. Well, I'll say this, that <laughs> one of the reasons... And, and No, no, wait a minute. Anytime somebody says this, they're dodging the question. Yeah, well, I, I'll, 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 I'll say this, that I had no intent of ever going into law enforcement. I never thought I would take a polygraph, and I would have had a lot less fun in college had I known I was going to go into law enforcement. And so that's where you kind of just bear your soul and uh, go through, you know, all the the stuff you did that college guys do. But, uh, you know, but I tell it to my son, like, look, someday you never know what you're going to do. If you ever go have to take a polygraph or do a federal background check to get uh, to be a, a, a federal prosecutor or, or a uh, federal law enforcement job or anything, uh, you'll have a lot less fun. And so, uh, I well, mean, let's I'd, talk about which area of the polygraph did you struggle with then? It's okay. So, well, <laughs> we're jumping ahead. What's Oklahoma? I mean, was there an animal involved here? Well, come on now. Yeah. Well, so here's the deal. <laughs> hey, 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 Sorry. Midwest. Oh, so, so I took a polygraph as a, that's when I became an agent. So I'd, I'd been a lawyer for, I think, yeah, it's, eight years, I'd been a prosecutor. So I'm thinking through uh, all of this crap uh, in terms of just like, well, have you ever possessed uh, drugs? Well, I, you know, I'd not had done that. But there was a time when I knew a, a friend of mine had uh, some, uh, uh, had picked up, you know, he's using some anabolic steroids and I, and I knew he had them in his pocket. And I don't think they're even controlled at the time, but I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's constructive possession because I knew he was in my car. So I'm writing all that crap down. And friends of mine were like saying, that's not what it means. I'm like, I'm not going to freaking, you know, make that needle jump on a polygraph. So I analyzed every damn question like it was a law school exam. And so I wrote down crap I didn't think was important. And so... It was uh, it was just kind of a weird time to take that. Uh, and notice, Steve, how he dodged that he did there's not self incriminating okay, here. That's what your friend did. Let's <laughs> let's rewind. Let's go back to college for a minute here. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly we, right. <laughs> I've, I've I've learned that. Uh, uh, I mean, that I filled that uh, uh, filled that out, and and of course at the time I had a bunch of buddies who were working at, at the bureau. We'll get to in a little bit, and so. Uh, we were actually at a conference, actually at A1, and I'm filling that thing out. And, uh, you know, guys have some kind of house beer in the uh, in the room at the hotel, and I'm trying to fill that thing out. And they're like, that doesn't, that, that's not what they mean. Don't put that in there. Uh, and, you know, and that's a weird thing. You know, I, there's a, a, a guy still at the bureau, you know, I'll tell you these these polygraphs. Uh, you know, we have a question about have you engaged in any, any uh, crimes that involve moral turpitude? And this guy was actually no, slow down. You got to explain to Murph what, first of all, turpitude <laughs> is. Well, well, 
Uh, that's exactly what. Can you translate this sign language that I'm using? Yeah. We're rolling right now. <laughs> well, that's exact. This guy, he's an agent now, but he was a, a counter drug, uh, National Guard counter drug um, intel guy working for the Bureau. And he had that same question. So we asked some buddies. He's like, hey, what's moral turpitude? And uh, and the other agent says, that's just like a crime that's like just inherently wrong. But, I, you know, I knew what moral turpitude was. But again, I knew all these things of of uh, things of being a lawyer. So it was just kind of a freaky way for me to do that. And so, all right, I, so you know, clearly, <laughs> Your Honor, uh, we have a hostile witness. Yeah. Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the polygraph. So I so I, he goes through and so he asked me, he said, OK, are there any crimes that you've committed that have evaded detection? And you know, these polygraphers are being stone cold. That's like, and I, any crime? And he said, yes. I'm like, uh, yeah. And so he said, well, we'll name them. And I'm like, okay. Uh, public drunk in college a lot. And I'm thinking, oh, that's no big deal. And he, and he, of course, he makes a note, anything else? I'm like, uh, yeah. Left of center. What else? And I'm, and I've been, you know, uh, following too close, a failure to signal. He goes, he goes like, I've seen out of liar, liar with Jim Carrey. And so I said, and, and he said, okay, hang on a minute. Are you thinking of all these crimes, you know, that you're trying to conceal? I said, no, you asked me anything I've done. I, but I know I was, I partied in college and I know I've Bad. committed about every traffic violation. I was going through naming everything in, in our vehicle title. He said, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just <laughs> want to know stuff you're trying to hide from me. Like, oh, hell no, no. I've told you all that stuff. And so, yeah, but he, but, he, but he sat there for all this time. Let me go through. I probably got through five or six traffic offenses. I'm just listing them out of my head. Yeah, and uh, went one. through that. And so it would have been easier just to point. drop the code book on him. Say, hey, look, if yeah. it's in there, I probably did it. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, if, yeah, name one I haven't done. So anyway, that was, uh, uh, that's what it was. So let's talk about, because you, you were bleeding orange, you know, orange and black, right? Is that, that's that's that is correct. Yes. For Oklahoma State. And um, by the way, there's another famous person that went to Oklahoma State, Murph, but you can't guess him. Um, Baker Mayfield. <laughs> no, no, no. Not that was OU. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Garth Brooks. There you go. Yeah. And a uh, buddy of mine was a DJ. And if he's listening, Storm Dennison, uh, uh, he actually ended up learning or meeting Garth and started. So when Garth did this tour, this friend of mine was rodeoing or announcing rodeos and DJing for this. He actually followed Garth Brooks around for a while on his tour. So really cool, really cool stuff. But what led you? I mean, how how could you? leave the orange and black and go to OU for law school? Well, because public, uh, the, the cost of going to a public uh, law school was one-fourth of a private law school. And so I do bleed orange, but I am a cheap ass, much more so than I am a cowboy. And so I could uh, swallow my orange pride and pay one-fourth the cost to go to... Uh, no law school at O State? Nope. No, yeah, yeah, no. There's just there's one at OU, and there's two in Oklahoma. There's three. There's two private law schools, and uh, and OU. Well, it's the old joke too. What do they call it? Doesn't matter where you go to medical school. What do they call even call the guy who graduates at the bottom of his class in medical school? Yeah, doctor. Doctor. Right. What do they call you? Yeah, they still call you lawyer. You know, attorney. So, what made you decide to make that leap though? To go from you, you. So, did you graduate as a poli sci major? I did. So, what made you? What where, where did the bug get into you that says, hey? Not only do I want to go to law school, but I want to go into prosecution. Well, that that actually happened. Um, so my first job in law school, between my first and second year, 
Uh, I went to work at uh, in Oklahoma. We are we have a Supreme Court for criminal cases called the Court of Criminal Appeals, and I went to work there uh, as an intern, and I loved it. I mean, it was just the theory of the law, uh, talking about the procedure, and I thought to myself, I, I just want to be. Uh, an appellate appellate, uh, lawyer. In fact, I'll be a law clerk. I talked to my judge about it and I said, I love this. I I become. Hey, hold on there for a second. Everybody's heard the term law clerk and even I, every now and then I have to look, what does it mean to be a, because we hear about the people who clerked for Supreme Court judges, justices. What does it mean to be a law clerk? So a uh, coffee, donuts, what, you know, sandwiches? Most appellate judges like these, these, uh, uh, if, if you ever see like a packet for an appeal, uh, all these transcripts and laws and briefs from both sides come in uh, and they do that. And so what the law clerk does is kind of uh, will go through. They, they may take a uh, look at um, uh, the citations of law, read the briefs, check the law, do some research to kind of see where that is. Uh, the, the way we did it there was uh, at the time. The law clerks would they would write like uh, internal memorandums about the briefs, would read those. Uh, and if it was an unpublished case, the, what we call the summary opinion, which was just not a just kind of, hey, we don't find any merited relief here. If it's written and unpublished, uh, there would be more work that went into them. And so uh, so what the law clerk does is is a lot of the uh, grunt heavy work lifting. Yeah, and assembling the text and putting it together and uh, briefing. And so we would actually look at the issues, take the briefs in there, uh, re- and read uh, the uh, and uh, brief the judge on it, and he would uh, kind of decide. That's at least what our judge did. Uh, what he's going to do. Uh, I mean, a lot of issues. Look, if, if it's a uh, a unique issue, then there'd be more time spent on it. But there are some issues that uh, are. Are, the law is very settled in there. The judge doesn't need to be briefed on the law. And so they ra- the defense may raise them every time, but it's a very well-settled law, so they can kind of get through those pretty quickly. So that's kind of what a law, uh, a law clerk does. What was one of the most unique things you worked on during that time when you were clerking? Was there any particular case or issue that may have made it to the Oklahoma Supreme Court or to a circuit court or beyond? Uh, let's see. I... Uh, I rem- gosh, I remember what what the interns would do is at the time that's uh, all of the photographs would be analog, and so when the when the uh, appeals came up, there'd be the packet, and and so when you would have these crime scene photos uh, and just kind of these gory crime scene photos, we would kind of just uh, uh, you know, hey, look at this, and we kind of pass those around, and and you'd kind of uh, see that. So I I do. Uh, the one I can remember, uh, I remember there was one that I almost kind of got sick, and I was the one time I just kind of was like a meat cleaver homicide and all the defensive wounds, and they kind of held that out, and I was like, ugh, and that was the, I don't know why that one kind of sticks in my head, and uh, was kind of just looking at that, you, you'd read, get all the evidence together, read the briefs, and kind of go forward uh, and do that, so uh, I, I worked mostly, I was an intern, I mean, I worked on what we called summary opinions, which were the uh, things there was no new area kind of of law not not an intricate new issue they're going to publish on which was really good for me because that made me learn the foundation of what all the law is in, in criminal procedure and the fourth amendment so uh because i worked there was a lot more of them and i would just kind of read the law and the briefs and so that that was really uh helpful to me later on just to kind of learn uh that appellate process and that basic foundation of what the law is now, are interns paid, or did you just have to suck it up and uh, do it? 
they're, they're both. So I started off n- uh, not paid and then, uh, then became a paid intern, which, you know, making like seven bucks an hour, I think minimum wage by three thirty-five back then. So I'm at, after coming out of college, I thought I was rich. I'm like, my gosh, look at this. I'm, I'm making it. Is, is this what lawyers get paid? Because I was just, uh, uh, used to doing things for, I mean, bad. It, that's what bad lawyers get paid. Good yeah. lawyers. <laughs> no. So, uh, but, but, but the process of going through law school, you know, you're, I think Steve, if I remember right, right. He's probably from a, from a true, just out of the shoot. He's the first lawyer we've had on. I know we've had other folks that got law degrees, you know, came back and yeah, I think so. I mean, and, you know, we don't, I mean, there's a distinction between lawyers when we talk about prosecutors and defense attorneys. It's, you know, one's good and one's bad. Unless you're, unless you've been charged with something, then you want a good defense attorney, right, Murph? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say my career, although I've been an agency attorney, I would always say I'm a, I'm a prosecutor, uh, which is, is, is a member of the law enforcement community. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of my identity in doing this. I've got, I've got a law degree to do that, but, uh. So, but during law school, though, did you, you know, kind of like with doctors, at some point you got to pick a specialty and go a certain place. What was it like for you for law school? Was it the same way or was was it just generally you learned about all of these things and then once you pass the bar, then you go focus on something? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, sometimes people get jobs in law school and they kind of, uh, they decide they kind of like the area, which it was for me. I mean, I... When I told my uh, judge, uh, Judge Lane, who's, who's since passed away, that I said, look, I think I want to be a law clerk. I, I, I love this appellate law and I love that we're talking about legal issues all the time. I love it. And he said, OK, you, you need to get in the trenches. You need to go and, and work uh, somewhere. It's so we're in an ivory tower up here. You need to know what it's like day to day in the trenches. And I said, OK. And so uh, the summer between my second and I worked there in the summer and then all, it was a full uh, part time. I'd go up there. When I wasn't uh, in class, I was working at the the appellate court. The all my in, in law school too. I stayed on as as a paid job, and so I went for summer. And, and there's a uh, a town called uh, Lawton, which is uh, got a uh, base Air Force or a uh, uh, Army base down there. And I went down there for the summer just to be an intern. And in Oklahoma, an intern as a prosecutor, you can get what's called a limited license to practice law, and you can make court appearances. Uh, sitting there and do trials uh, as an intern and i went down to lawton and there's a lot there was a lot of crime in lawton and uh and got an apartment down there for the summer and just like we said that that's where it the switch flipped and i just said oh holy hell i will do this for free and uh i went back to uh my judge who kept my job open for me for my third year law school okay uh, you you're glossing over a lot of good okay. stuff let's rewind you All get right. in there what's what's the first case you get what's the you know obviously everybody's like i want to do my first case do you remember your first case you did um yes yeah, so I, I can remember a lot of the first that were that were down there i remember the first time i went into court and uh i mean i'm 23 24 i guess at the time and I've never been around criminals, and I go in to do uh, a bond. Wait a minute, I thought you said you went to Oklahoma State. Oh, well, oh. <laughs> there, uh, here we go. See, we're, I'll be posting uh, Morgan's uh, personal cell phone number and his yeah. home address here later. <laughs> uh, well, so I go down there, and I, this I do remember this. I am uh, I'm setting this guy's bond, and he's one to get out, and he's it's like a I don't know some kind of minor burglary case and i'm just going in there and it's the first time and i am within punching distance of him 
And they, at that place, they called them cash property or surety, which is a, you know, give a cash bond, a, a put up property or have a bondsman. And that's what they call that down there. And so I just said, uh, you know, you're, and he says, what says the state? And I said, you honor the state request a $5,000 bond cash property surety. And I'm closing my eyes thinking this is going to hurt when this some bitch punches me. And then, um, then I realized, uh, you know, he looks at me and just like, but sir, I didn't, uh, I, I really, I, I didn't mean to do that. Whatever. He'd get some kind of BS excuse. And I just said, okay, well, this guy's not, he looks like he's more scared of me than I am of him. And, uh, and so that was the, the first time. Uh, yeah, I remember that I, I did my, fir- I, I remember my first misdemeanor non-jury trial. My, they actually said we did a robbery, uh, uh, jury trial an armed robbery jury trial with i had to have a supervising attorney in there but they let me do quite a bit uh I remember the first prelim on a manslaughter case and so all, all those things were just i mean i loved it they now part of it was they treated me like i was a prosecutor down there they asked they asked me to stay on and say look we ran through our intern budget we'll find some money you can work here your third year and it was an hour and 15 minutes away from uh from norman where i was at, going to law school and i i felt bad my judge kept my job open and he was a phenomenal man. I said, look, Judge, they, they've asked me to stay. You've kept my job open. You were shorthanded all summer. And he was just like, okay, you're fired. I mean, as, as he just said, I want you to do that. And I said, thank you so much. He's always was kind of a mentor. And I commuted my last year of law school. I drove an hour and 15 minutes just to go down there. So how did you balance that with the need to study? Because you got the, I mean, this is all going to be for naught if you don't pass the bar. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, when you... By my third year of law school, I'm 25. All of my friends have jobs. Well, you and Nurk had something in common. His by fourth grade, he was 25. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're there, and, and I I just wanted that they've got jobs, and I and you kind of just feel like you're a college student going to class. And then when I'd already got a taste of uh, uh, of being in the real world and, and actually, you know, going into doing cases and screening cases and making court appearances. Uh, I, I just could not wait uh, to get out. And so uh, by, by that time, I'd taken all the basics that are on the bar and I was just taking classes to fill up my, to get my required hours. I mean, it's, it's like crap, like water rights law, ag law, stuff I'd never used just to get the hours. Uh, and then you switch the bar exam, then you just focus your full time just on those uh, categories and just study about 14 hours a day, which. Did you pass it the first time? It was, you know, the, the, it was so the, the, the bar exam right before us had a one third failure wow. rate and it was just, um, and I, I'll tell you, so I actually, so it actually, and the pressure on me after, uh, and, and then the, those people down there in Lawton worked their butt off to get me a, a, a prosecutor job. They made phone calls to, there was not an opening there. There actually was one, uh, in my hometown, uh, which is up in North central Oklahoma and uh, so they hired me. Uh, actually, they said when they hired me, they said that their shorthand is said, OK, when can you start? And I go, well, I got a final on May 7th Then I'm and I said it was during the finals week. They said, can you start May the 8th? And I said, yes, I can. And so I took a final Then I drove. My parents live there and I just got my old bedroom and uh, uh, went to work the day after my last final, which is still during finals week. But I call that my kind of my anniversary date of May 8th of 96. And uh, so, but the bar exam, they don't post results until, I see that's May, until uh, middle of September. So uh, 
I had, everybody knew here, I come back home, I've got this. And they actually, you can get a license to practice pending the bar, uh, without even supervising attorney. So I was at my hometown. Everybody knew me, the whole courthouse. I'm the new guy. If I'd have failed the bar, I would have done it in front of like everybody of like, where's he at? Oh, he didn't pass the bar. And so I just kind of said, if I didn't pass it, I'm going to go sell insurance and move to <laughs> Kansas or something. And, uh, that would have been a step up for you too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and there's no, re- the, there's no reciprocity between Kansas and Oklahoma. So that's why the lawyers never kind of go back and forth. They're one of the few places we don't wreck each other's, uh, recognize each other's, uh, bar exams. Hey, and Brian, you, you feel free to call bullshit on Morgan anytime you want to brother. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> well, no, because I'm correct. Hey, by the way, too, um, there is a term, explain that to me real quick, too, and I think I've heard it right, too, it's where you can go to another state and sit in, but it's called Pro Hoc Vice. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. So uh, now I have had some Kansas lawyers come back there. If you're, It's a, I don't know what the Latin term translation is, but uh, to make an appearance Pro Hoc Vice is if you can go to somewhere that you are not licensed, if you're an attorney, like say you're an attorney in Kansas, you're not licensed in Oklahoma, you could appear Pro Hoc Vice, which is specifically to that case it's out in the open saying you're not licensed here typically in oklahoma you have to have a sponsoring attorney that's licensed there uh as well so you know you uh, the what times i've seen it like in a criminal case they bring somebody down and uh, they'll have a local uh defense lawyer to make sure you comply with all the rules there, there there's well but then they may bring them in to do their examinations of like an expert witness or some kind of area of specialty that they may bring them in for that case so they're practicing but it's limited just to that case with a, a local attorney present it, what about the issue of liability though right i mean so if somebody sponsors you are they liable for your conduct as well too that's that's a good question i don't know how the malpractice i never have malpractice insurance so that's a uh that's a good question certainly there are lawyers responsible for what they do but if the lawyer does something unethical not on the record i don't know that that would uh translate to the sponsoring attorney but uh that's a guess i just haven't uh that's a deep question i haven't it, it doesn't happen that often i mean probably two or three times in my career have i seen a pro uh appearance from an, an out-of-state lawyer well, you said you don't have to have malpractice. Is that because you're a government employee and you're covered by the government? Correct. Yes. And so, yeah, if, if you're an agency attorney or prosecutor, there's certain immunities that if you, uh, you know, if you're within your scope of your employment, uh, advising the agency, if you're uh, within the scope of your employment as a prosecutor, then uh, uh, you don't have to have insurance. Now, if there's certain things that happen, we have a, the state has its own insurance that covers you, but uh but, but that's covered in terms of both indemnifying you and having the coverage by the, uh, uh, the legal coverage kind of by the attorney general's office to appear on your behalf. So you ever been sued? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. <laughs> that's, I knew that. But it's like everybody sues oh, you, right? I know. Yeah. If you're, if you're doing your job, you're going to get sued. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wind back to your time. So what county is Lawton County in? Uh, Comanche County. Lawton is in Comanche County. And so that's in the in southwest part of Oklahoma. And I grew up and I was a prosecutor when I started uh, my first job up in North Central, up in Ponca City, which is where I'm from. But as you started out, how much did having the clerking experience and then, you know, doing that summer when you could do limited practice, how did that help you as you started launching your career? Did it tell you, hey, look, are you are you comfortable doing prosecutions? Did you want to move into doing something else? You know, what where did you go with this? So the. I'll take each one of those. The time uh, working in the appellate court 
really helped in giving me, I mean, I had a full year of just reading a ton of legal briefs on both sides, seeing both sides going to argue that. Was it both criminal and civil? No, it was just criminal. Just criminal? criminal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and in my time in the DA's office in Lawton was just, it was a tremendous DA's office. I think there were seven or eight criminal prosecutors and I just wanted to be like them. I mean, they were just guys that were, went in there as meat eaters to say, we're not putting up with your bullshit or your crimes and we're getting up for the fight. And I, I just wanted to be like them. I'd, I'd watch those older guys as a retired Vietnam helicopter pilot that would go in there. And I just said, I want to be like that, 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 that's, I want to be like, uh, those guys. And they were just, they just had these kind of, you know, imprinted on me, uh, doing that. And I think I'll, I'll always have that influence on me. And so they, they did in different ways. And then I kind of just go into, uh, being a prosecutor and ultimately I've, I've done almost my whole career in drug enforcement. Again, I didn't, I fell into that too. I mean, I, uh, go back and I'm just an entry level prosecutor. Uh, and then I've been there less than a year, uh, up in, uh, Ponca city and, and uh, what K county, county is that? that's K County. We K have county? two counties, K and, K and Noble County in our district. And, uh, the, we had a grant funded position, uh, by the, then it was called the burn grant. Now it's called JAG, but a grant funded position as a drug prosecutor. And that position came open. And so I'm, I've supervised the drug task force. I do all the drug prosecutions. There's an, uh, 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 Highway Patrol had an interdiction team that worked that county in I-35, which was a phenomenal uh, interdiction team, taught me a lot. And so I'm, again, I'm 25, 26 years old, and I've got guys that have been in narcotics enforcement longer than I've been alive. And I'm supposed to supervise them, and way underqualified. But then I just kind of got into, th- th- then I got in, into drug enforcement. And then again, I just uh, have, just focused on that from that point uh, up until today. But had had it not been for that, did you have a preference? I mean, as you were doing all these different things like robbery, crimes against persons, crimes against property, was were you getting pulled in a direction that you would have liked to have gone and then the drug stuff showed up or what happened? Yeah, you know, not at that time. I mean, I've, I'd done those crimes. I just wanted to be a prosecutor. Wait a minute. Uh, you done those crimes? Are we having to get I've done, those, I've, I've done those prosecutions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go back and talk about your polygraph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I did. Uh, I I'd done all those. You know those kind of prosecutions. I'm sorry. Just before you go any further, you have the right to remain silent. Yeah, I know. That's Anything what, you say. <laughs> yeah. Anytime my friends say, "Hey, what would you advise me as a lawyer?" Like, just don't talk. How about that? Uh, there you go. <laughs> or as the Brits say, uh, you don't have to say anything, but if you do say anything, it can be used in evidence against you. We, we're we're going to be interviewing a, a British cop tomorrow, and I, I like their I like their cautions, what they call it. You know, like our warnings and stuff. Right. But, I like the fact though they go. You do not have to say anything, but if you fail to mention anything that you later rely, it may harm your defense. If you fail to mention something now that you later rely on, I just the way the fact that you got to come in for an interview. I mean, you can say no comment, but a little bit different than us. But going back to that, so you're talking about it just kind of went that way. What was the appeal though about drugs that made you want to stay with it and not move on to something else? Okay, so so two things. I when I was very young, uh, I will tell you, I. I want no part of uh sex crimes prosecutions i think they're vitally important uh hats off to those that do it but uh i I remember i was second chairing uh a a sex crimes prosecutor who's tremendous uh the first assistant there and it was uh, early on and uh the guy was a police officer and 
when the jury acquitted the guy, it's a swearing match, you know, I didn't do it. And he comes in as a detective and I never did this stuff. When, when we came back and I see that kid's eyes fill up with tears and, and back in the, the victim witness room and he said, are they saying it didn't happen? And we're, you know, I mean, what do you say to that? And he was, I don't know, about 10 years old and his, and he said, I don't care. I don't ever want to see him again. And his eyes are, he's just devastated. And I just hated that. I, I wanted no part of that. So the, the attraction to me, and, and look, I've done some, uh, some death penalty cases, uh, which when you prosecute those cases, you have your cops, but your fact witnesses are almost always, they have uh, difficulty uh, and, uh, and baggage. So they drink a lot. And that's one, one of mine was a, a bunch of uh, winos. Uh, well, one guy had killed a couple, but uh, with cops, it, they're professional witnesses. And so they appear with drug cases. Uh, especially when I had the same guys appearing over and over again, and they're just, they're subject matter experts. It, it just is something that, uh, I liked for myself, uh, working with those and what I have found throughout my entire career in drug cases is, is, uh, look, what separates drug crimes, really vice crimes, if you, if you include, you know, prostitution and gambling, but drug crimes are unreported. If some guy sells an ounce of meth and a guy gets his ounce of meth, uh, that's a felony on both sides that, you know, it may carry a life in prison depending on the record. But when that happens, it is unreported. Whereas burglaries, sex offenses, you know, cops react to those when they take reports and investigate those. So you have to be more proactive uh, in, in in infiltrating, use all the the right side of your brain in drug enforcement. And so in, in learning my background kind of with the law and working with cops, uh, things with uh, the interdictors, the drug task force guys, and you get all the way up to uh hide groups and uh uh dea and and uh you know when you pull off somebody on a traffic stop and you go to a controlled delivery or uh run that then you're using the right side of your brain which to me i just enjoy i think that's and i, I just love that part of it and kind of my background to uh help guys uh do that because another thing is anytime i mean every drug case there's a search or a seizure, e- even a wiretap, you're seizing a conversation under the, under the Fourth Amendment. A lot of uh, victim crimes, it's all testimony. There might be a Fourth Amendment issue, but uh, it's all the, all of the uh, the Fourth Amendment for us. And being proactive to go out there uh, and do that, whether it's uh, you know a street crimes unit, interdiction, uh, about any look, drug enforcement is special operation. It it, it just is, and uh, and so. It, because that's more challenging, I've just really, really kind of enjoyed that and what I've had in my background to kind of work with officers and do that. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to dispute you to say drug crimes don't get reported. Murph and I have done a couple of stories on rocket scientists who call up and say, somebody just ripped me off of my meth. <laughs> yeah. It's usually meth, right? right? <laughs> um, yeah. But, but in your experience, though, kind of ties forward. In your experience, out of all the crimes that are committed, homicide, rape, you know, you take your part one crimes on NCIC, rape, robbery, um, murder, uh, auto theft, arson, burglary, uh, aggravated assault, uh, can't think of the other one. How many of those things have a drug thread running through them? How many of those have a relations to drugs? So I would say the overwhelming majority, uh, but I, I, you know, I can say this, uh, 
there was a uh i don't know if murph knows uh jeff stom who yeah uh jeff and, and of course you probably know jeff i, I know him from the uh kind of the, the speaking tour jeff was a uh guy you know he wrote his book uh on delf about dea and the formation of dea and drug policy it's it's it had a huge influence on me uh i saw jeff i think we were in dc both at a conference and he's mentored me uh but jeff when he was the midwest hida director commissioned uh, a study all okay, the law now, enforcement you said it twice we have a rule you got to define acronyms so okay we know i'm what sorry I mean. so say tell people what hida is so hida is a, a federal program the acronym is a uh, high intensity drug trafficking area and it's a federal program where some money goes through and it can the hida uh is is kind of a quasi-governmental entity that uh uh it, that actually Overseas, the it's the board is made up typically of uh, law enforcement within the, the trafficking uh, the area. Uh, they appoint a director. It's oftentimes a, re- a retired law enforcement officer, and that director kind of oversees uh, assets that go to different way. Now there can be they, they also be involved in what's called deconfliction, which is a reporting system to make sure that uh, that two people aren't chasing the same target, or if you're on an operation to make sure it's not a blue on blue. Does, does that sound familiar, Murph? Maybe maybe at a waffle house or an ihop in florida or oh yeah yeah it's uh i worked in the atlanta hider for quite a while and it's it's a great uh, facility for bringing together the feds with the state and locals so everybody works together towards a common common goal yeah and well stom his hider group in midwest hida and i don't know what we're not in midwest hida but i know i think kansas missouri kind of at the i'm not sure what all states are in there but he commissioned a study was surveying all of the law enforcement uh, in his uh, group, and it's a tremendous uh, report that's out there. Uh, and uh, they determined that they know that two thirds of the property and violent crime in the Midwest Hida coverage area, uh, two thirds had a direct connection to uh, drug trafficking or drug distribution. So, uh, again, the, the numbers when, when look a lot of the people. Pushing, so wait a minute. So you're telling me selling drugs and using drugs is not a victimless crime <laughs> yeah i mean that's the we, one of the biggest uh things with all of the policy reforms is this uh these, these kind of perpetuation of myths you know that people it would be wouldn't it be nice if people use drugs in a vacuum i mean you know, t- take any state right now with a homeless population that's a broke-ass homeless population and they use drugs well just to make it clear Dope dealers don't give away their shit for free. So how do you think they fund their drug use? And uh, and so, you know, we, we interviewed, uh, I always, this kind of stuff interests me. So uh, recently, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we interviewed a guy, uh, some officers were flipping him as an informant, and he was a heroin, could buy from some heroin sources. And I said, you know, how often do you use? And I, and, uh, I think he said he uses hair, that he uses heroin daily, about a hundred bucks a day. And I said, well, do you ever have a job last three years? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, how, how did you, how'd you, fu- how'd you fund it? Well, and he basically was just stealing. Uh, he would, uh, go to about any store that he could steal stuff and return it, either sell it to someone, trade it for dope, uh, or just kind of do the old burn and return and just kind of take it back uh, and do that. And over the course of three, now he said he stole once, three times a week. Now he used daily, his math did that up. Let's do his dumbass math. What I, what I figured out was that, that he, for three years, he had 150 theft events. 
He was detected one time by store personnel, but he wasn't arrested. They saw him. He ran out and didn't get caught. And so all of those, whether it's report, whether, whether uh, they report as loss inventory or whatever it is, it is categorized as, as, a, so, yeah, as, as some other kind of non-drug crime. But it, it has its essence. It is, look, people don't go and steal copper to pay their effing JUCO uh, tuition. I mean, it's not like somebody goes on a meth pipe and says, hey, honey, uh, I can't go to my CrossFit gym anymore. I'm smoking meth again. I mean, that the, you know, all these auto burglaries and everything, it is to fund drug addiction. So when you talk about relapses or recidivism, whatever it might be, uh, that's really a euphemism for victimizing somebody. You know, one of the things it didn't it didn't get a lot of publicity. Uh, but the, under, uh, the Obama administration, the Department of, uh, Justice, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did a study. They studied 400,000 prisoners that were released in 30 states. Oklahoma's was one of them, but 400,000, that, that's a pretty big ass sample survey. And what they found was within, uh, 46% of those released from prison were arrested within one year. Um, you know, uh, Two-thirds were arrested within three years. I think it's six years. It's 79%. By the nine-year period, 83% were arrested. Now, what they'll say is, well, those are just fail-to-pay process parole crimes. Nope, that was a, that was like less than 1%. Uh, it's like, well, there's drug offenders in the war on drugs. Well, it turns out 77% of the drug offenders, 77% of released drug offenders were arrested for a non-drug crime. So when you kind of go back to your, when you talk to police officers and say, you know, look, they can, we know directly that by the surveys that two thirds, the violent crime and property crime is actually fueled by uh, uh, the drug trade. I don't know what the other one third is. And, uh, and with all this reform measures, I mean, it's a pretty simple formula. If, if you tolerate drug use, drug related crimes go up. It's kind of the reverse. It's kind of well corollary to the broken window theory. It, it, it's kind of moved on from there. But if you allow one broken window to be there for you folks, go back and read this. Uh, you allow one broken window to be there, then pretty soon there's two, and if there's two, there's four. Then there's abandoned cars, and then all sorts of other crimes follow it because it's a perception by people. You don't care about your neighborhood. You don't care about this, and therefore these types of things are allowed to move into your neighborhood. Well, in, in New York, when you know uh, Bratton and Giuliani took the broken windows essay from Wilson, and they they did that. He was out know, of Rutgers. I had a chance to meet him. Wilson. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, a brilliant social scientist that uh, has a lot of impact. Well, you know, you know, their misdemeanor arrests went up. Violent crime went down. And you, you know something? And this is a real quick sideline. When I was a detective, uh, and even as a street officer starting Garden City, I made lots of curfew arrests. In fact, I made so many curfew arrests, they called me Captain Curfew. But you know what? When I was a detective and I started getting looked at the stats, I started telling these guys, you got to make these curfew arrests. Why? Because when you arrest kids that have no business being out, if they're young enough past 1030 or if they're under 18 past midnight, guess what happened to our property crime, crimes against people in all those areas? They went down too. There is a direct cause and effect. I mean, and, and um, I mean, in New York's, that was it was kind of the, the murder capital. Their murder rate went down, I think, like sixty five percent. And that was all the guys doing jump and turnstiles, window washing, right? And handling all those things, all the yeah. quality of life stuff. And what's interesting it is actually New York's prison population when it went up everywhere else. New York's prison population went down. Now the ones that 
were getting sentences went longer, but by not tolerating deviance and as starting at that basic level, then uh, violent crime just uh, it just went down, uh, and uh, it's it's was a and it outpaced the rest of the country. I mean, there there was an effort right there because of all the crime. There was an effort to actually uh, in the '90s to direct enforcement towards people in the street strikes, and they got tough on crime for a while, and violent crime went down a decades long decline up until about you know 2008 2010 kind of these idea of policy changes happened we tolerate that we're going to reduce the prison population and all of a sudden we see this trajectory of violent crime going up well the way they reduce the prison population is create so much crime there's no way the prison can support them so then you pass bills like california did to release a lot of people out of prison which doesn't solve your problem in the first place so here we go again yeah, and thanks for thanks for quantifying and qualifying that because you know to most people, law-abiding citizens, that's common sense. But you know when you got the numbers to back it up, it's just like employing science to to justify what you're talking about. So thanks well, for bringing and, that and up. That's, you know, we'll get to the book, but that's it, it is just the history is is so it's it's so consistent. Like, well, look, they've tried this before. They let people out of prison in the '60s. They reduced the prison population from 212,000 to, I think, 190,000. And that was an effort. This idea is getting recycled now. And then what happens is drug use uh, skyrockets, violent crime explodes mm-hmm. up. And now, you know, even today, we're starting to see organizations that want to come in and let's review everybody in jail and let's see what their sentence was. Is it commensurate with the crime? Well, it was at the time it was committed. You know, you can't, you can't go back and change the laws later. Well, and, you know, one of the things, well, again, I, that, that'd be nice. The, the, no one ever says that about tax evasion is just say, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, here's the deal. It's we've changed the tax code. Th- therefore, we're going to legalize your tax evasion when everyone else pay their taxes. But it's just kind of this this reformer thing that's uh, kind of been out there. And uh, uh, look, th- there's there's been a lot of and, and uh, there's been uh, there's a pretty clear historical record of the success of enforcement. The uh devastation of laying off of enforcement but uh i'm kind of fear this little era we're in right now we've had one of the most accelerated explosions in uh in crime that is uh, parallels exactly uh, efforts to reduce enforcement and absolutely look at what's going on in atlanta georgia right now morgan and i were talking about this yesterday we're probably going to do a patreon special on it you know, where the, the Antifa groups are moving into those areas that, the, you know, they want to say, oh, this is our private area. Screw you, pal. You don't own the property. You you know, you, man, I don't want to get off on tangent there, but I agree with you 100%. We're, we're becoming too permissive uh, when it comes to the rule of law. Well, you know, look, um, three things define a nation, language, borders, culture, right? And if our culture is to allow people to break the law and get away with it, see, people think cops want to be heavy handed. No, we just want people to. So the one disagreement I'll have, we, 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 we do as best as we can. We're, we're imperfect. We do as best as we can to stay apolitical. But I, but I really want the president to stop saying we got to retrain police officers to, like, shoot them in the leg. If you've been to the range with some of the cops I have, they're lucky they can hit the target, much less, <laughs> oh, I'm going to shoot you in the knee from 50 yards on a dead run. Uh, we're all expert shots. You know, it's and and I, I saw some other feet, uh, uh, comment on that this morning. I mean, I, earlier before... Uh, yeah, he'd said, shoot him in the leg, uh, and then retrain people not to use that. And and again, they talk about law enforcement training, but how about citizen training? Yeah. Well, how about we retrain people to follow the law? but, But here's the deal. Maybe I think of this because I'm a lawyer. The training we give law enforcement comes from 
the the law and the Fourth Amendment and is and is it reasonable to take someone's life? If you shoot at somebody, it's deadly force. It doesn't matter if you, sh- right. if you shoot them in the knee, which we're never, we're never trained to do that because it's deadly force. We can only use deadly force when there's probable cause to believe that the person is a threat to uh, uh, the officer or other individuals. The, the, our training that we have in law enforcement comes from the constitutional basis upon which the government actor can take someone's life. And so the training is just part of what we can. So you're going to have to actually change and say, all of a sudden, shooting somebody in the knee is not deadly force. That that that's not accurate. You you could hit it. I mean, you hit somebody in the leg, hit, hit a femoral artery. Exactly. Yeah, they're it's, dead. They're dead in a minute. It is, and, and and how that that idiocy goes unchallenged blows my mind. But then again, I mean. That's the, I mean, I, I could, it, and, and whether it, it, it's, and again, it, it may be political, it may, may also be kind of be cultural, but when there are just these groups that perpetuate uh, these ideas, it just becomes crazy. And sometimes they say things out loud, uh, which when everyone, uh, you know, during uh, 2020, like uh, the, uh, and I know we'll get to it, but the funny thing is, you know, when I'm writing this book about criminal justice reform, the premise, and I began it in November of 19. The premise of the book is if you lay off of enforcement, whether it's through laws, whether it's from a DA not enforcing the law, whatever it may be, if you restrict enforcement, bad shit will happen. And and then we have the summer of 2020 with an effort to defund and, and cop-free zones in Seattle. Uh, the only thing that surprised me is how quick the uh, decline was because it blew up. But I, I'm trying to get the manuscript done, get it to the copy editor. And there's all these things I can't keep up. So uh, that's why, uh, you know, I, uh, the, the the thing I, there's a lot of things that can exemplify, but the Jacob Blake shooting, you know, and, you know, Jacob Blake, the first narrative comes out that. Uh, Give everybody some context. So Jacob Blake was in, in Blake. Kenosha. And, um, and the, the, it went through phases but uh, he was shot by the police, was uh, not fatal and survived. And so then this, the first story that comes out is he's, this, uh, uh, he's, he's a black male shot by a white police officer. That's what all the headlines uh, were saying. He was an unarmed black male shot in the back uh, by the police. And that was out there. Well, uh, uh, there's some riots that come up there. Well, uh, I think Joe Biden was running for president and said at a minimum, the officers need to be charged. Uh, Kamala Harris said she was proud of Jacob Blake, and uh, this narrative just kind of uh, went out there. And then it starts up, and the NBA cancels games. I mean, they canceled all of their games to protest the Jacob Blake. Uh, LeBron James makes this quote saying, uh, WTF, this is why hunting our people, we demand justice. Uh, there are uh, There are riots in the streets because these officers are not charged. Immediately after the NBA cancels their games, and they go through all, they, they make all their little statements to slam the police, and LeBron James says that. Then the uh, Wisconsin State Police, whatever they call them, the ones investigating the shootings. Bureau of Criminal Investigation, that, I think it's called. Yeah, in, the, 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 they have an outside agency doing it. They release, and there's, there's this chatter like, is, are the officers yelling something about a knife in the cell phone video and they and and no one's commenting on that well then uh, 
the Wisconsin Department of whatever it is, that agency that state the state police that's investigating the shooting, just say uh, there were um, uh, Jacob Blake had admitted he was armed with a knife. The officers asked him to do it. There's a knife found where he was. Uh, and then I think it was the New York Post, because no one else wants to, to come out with this, uh, comes out with a story that essentially, oh, and, oh, the narrative was he was this, he got mistaken because he basically was trying to break up a fight between two females. They thought he was an aggressive male and he got shot in front of his kids, the horror and just all this kind of uh, inflammatory stuff. There's riots because these officers are not in jail. Then we get the other facts that actually he had a warrant out for his arrest for sexual assault. He is actually at his victim's house. If you read, it's horrendous that the uh, things in the affidavit he had done to sexually assault her, thinking he had uh, she had cheated on him, had been in an off and on and off relationship. Uh, he's there. They tase him. I think he puts one of them in a headlock. He's got a knife. He won't drop it. They're going back there. And then at that point, when he won't drop the knife, that's when he gets shot. And, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, and I think oh, I haven't checked in a while, but there's still some of these traditional media sites saying he's an unarmed black man shot in the back. And that's false. And uh, and then I, I just blows my mind how no one could just say, hey, uh, President Biden, you said that uh, these officers should have been charged. And of course, and since that time, now the manuscript is turned in. It kind of goes dark. No one talks about it. They've since been cleared by the local DA as justified shooting. Uh, Biden's DOJ investigates their civil rights violation, finds on civil rights violation. Now, mm. I, I just don't yeah, know why, why... That doesn't get publicized, no, wh does Why it? doesn't someone ask him, hey, you... Uh, I, I thought we were intolerant for comments that could cause unrest, and uh, especially when they're false. And so, you know, you had made a comment that they weren't charged in your own Justice Department, so they shouldn't be charged. Was it... Uh, there were riots because they weren't. How do you feel about that? Is that should we should we take down those comments? But I think we've kind of seen that uh, whether something is inflammatory or inaccurate kind of depends on the perspective of the people overseeing it. So uh, it, it just and to, in our world that makes being a public safety officer so much more difficult. Uh, it's it, it's one thing when the the jackasses that uh, from these interest groups uh, just go through. And kind of um, uh, will say, I mean, they're going to say what they're going to say. They annoy us. But when public officials say those kind of things, uh, it makes it so much more difficult uh, for all of these uh, officers uh, doing that. And it's led to a massive morale problem in, in Exodus that I kind of fear long term uh, for that. Yeah, just I got a couple comments on all this, too, because back when when Biden was vice president, uh, he was one of the keynotes at the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference. I think it was in Orlando. And he could have been more, more pro-law enforcement, rule of law. We've got to stand up for what's right. This is what our country's based on, you know, the, all the rhetoric. But then as as popular opinion, trending opinion changes, it just makes you sick how politicians will change their opinion so they can get that vote. And so we had John Mattingly on here earlier this year on Game of Crimes, and, and he was involved in the Breonna Taylor shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. And and what did we hear from John, Morgan? We heard that one of the people coming out calling the police criminals was our vice president, Kamala Harris. You know, and, and then a lot of the high-profile sports stars, musicians, you know, the, the popular people come out without knowing what the facts are and make their statements. And, and so now when we've got our president and our vice president making statements like this, 
how do we have any trust in them? You know, the uh, I want to ask President Biden, how many times have you been shot at? Because I want to see you under fire shoot somebody in the leg. Unfortunately, I've been in a lot of shootings in my in 38 years as a cop. I was involved in a lot of shootings, especially down in Columbia. You're putting lead down range to get your ass to a safe place is what you're trying to do. Look, man, you can't get small enough and hide behind something is, you know, when when that stuff happens. But, you know, but see, the, the problem is the problem is the media and the narrative, because once it gets out there, it's out there. Right. It's very hard to unring that bell. So it was the same fiction in Ferguson, Missouri. Hands up. Don't shoot. Michael, the, the same DOJ department, Obama's DOJ, Eric Holder and the folks went down there. They investigated officer, I think it was Derek Wilson. Again, what did, what, what did we find? No charges. What did we find in the case of John Mattingly? No charges. Look, if they're looking for a sacrificial lamb, it would have been, look, you guys all know, and especially you, Brian Server, our guest of honor, you know that you can indict a ham sandwich at a grand jury. And the fact that you can't even get to that level, the fact that the attorney general in Kentucky refused to even take the case to the grand jury because it didn't meet the threshold. We've got to be careful about the stuff we put out there because we live with it. And to your point, we live with the consequences. We live with the riots. We live with the aftermath. Well, and, and two things that, uh, you know, uh, one is is like well, somebody may, somebody may say, well, OK, so what if 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 Biden says some kind of goofy thing about shooting him in the leg? Well, there are riots going on right now in Atlanta. Because of what people say. Right. Because we well, should have shot him in the leg. I know he shot you. You should have shot him in the leg. You you just go right to kill you. What you want to shoot. I mean, it's the use of deadly force that that is the legal standard right there. And well, Brent, but, but when somebody does that, look, somebody says you should have shot him in the leg. Then to your point, like we said, you hit him in the femoral artery and then you kill him. Well, you should have shot him. You should have shot him then. You should have missed the femoral artery. There, there's always that slippery slope of that argument. The whole point is when you're taught about the use of force, and I want to ask you a clarifying question about the two because you used a different term than I would have used. But when you use deadly force or when you use lethal force, you're shooting at the largest available target. If that's center mass, that's center mass. If that's a head or if it's a... But the point about it is, is you're not shooting to kill. Murph and I, we have talked about this many times. You're shooting to stop the threat. You use only that amount of force necessary to stop the threat. If it takes one shot, two shots, three shots. But I wanted to ask you something. First of all, I want to clarify something. It's the Division of Criminal Investigation in Wisconsin rather than BCI. So I wanted to be factually correct. But you said you use the term when it comes to use of deadly force. You said probable cause. Is that has things changed versus a reasonable belief? What would a reasonable person believe? Well, it's it's. Probable cause is through the filter of it's always been a probable cause from Tennessee v. Gardner and um, uh, the uh, cases in, in the use of force. But the uh, the probable cause is evaluated in the context of a reasonable person. So, uh, it, I mean, it, it's kind of tomato, tomato. It might be in my world, I would say probable cause because that is the, if you're talking about a, a 1983 action, if we, when we had to review in, in my uh, prosecutor days, a lot of the officer involved shootings, whether or not it was, uh, it was fatal or not, the standard is the same. If you shoot at somebody, uh, it is the use of deadly force. That doesn't mean you intend to. It's not like 
like in the military, like we're green lighted to take out the terrorist. We're going to kill him. It's not that it is, but it is the use of deadly force. And so that may kill him. It may not, but it's it, soon as it stops, but as soon as a threat goes away, there's no longer his ability to well, use you could, deadly you force. You could shoot and miss and the guy stops or girl stops, raises her hand and says, okay, I give up. And then it's over. It's still the use of lethal force. Nobody was hit, but you could even miss the target. And the, the, the situation has resolved itself. If we had, if we had sh- shootings, even if it, if it didn't make contact, uh, even if it wasn't fatal, we still review those in the exact same manner in the DA's office, uh, the district attorney's office, to determine if it was a, uh, a lawful use of force. Which is, th- that's the, maybe I kind of gravitate towards that we have to look at these things. And again, not, it is not, and with that probable cause, it's not as the reality. You know, uh, you know, again, this is what happens. And even, even I think courts do this sometime. If you see me read, if I see, if, if, if we're in an encounter, you've got Intel, I'm a violent person that said, I'm not going to be taken by the police. And you go to arrest me and I reach in my waistband, like I'm pulling something out. And, uh, and then you shoot a guy, uh, you know, use deadly force, whether it's, uh, and shoot at him, miss whatever, uh, however that uh, ends up. Well, if, if he's got, you know, say he's got some, you know, I've seen this before. He has a bunch of Oxycontin tablets stuffed in his underwear. Well, you don't have to wait to see because you can say he's unarmed. But the, the issue is, is was it reasonable? Was it was a probable cause? And was it reasonable to believe that uh, that individual posed a threat to you? And you don't based have- on based on the knowledge you had based at the time, based on the information, based upon the environment, too. He's not like a hundred yards away to where he's not going to be able to hit you with something. But yeah. And that's the whole point. I think it's context. Murph, you had something. Yeah. I just want to clarify one thing about uh, John Manning's case with Brianna Taylor and the Kentucky attorney, attorney general, the attorney general was the one state official that backed the police. Uh, I think we said, you know, that he, he said he refused to take the case. He's the one person that actually, well, yeah, backed what I meant was he, he, he because it didn't meet the threshold. He refused to take it to the, the court for even indictment. For- yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he was, he was, and, and the funny thing, he was a black man. Yeah. And it's, you know, not to get racial, but, uh, you know, the facts are the facts. The other thing I want to mention too is, is, uh, when you were describing, uh, the, 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 uh, I don't know, start to say demise of law enforcement, but what's going on with law enforcement today and defunding the police. You sounded like a Southern Baptist minister, man, like an evangelist. <laughs> you I were loved on it. Yeah. I was ready to pound the, Pound the table and say, hey, man, bro, bring it on. That's kind of where if uh, with all I've done uh, in my uh, career and sometimes you think, um, you know, when I decided when I when I left being an agent to went to be went back to be a a prosecutor for a few years at a first assistant, I talked to my old boss, who's now the presiding uh, appellate judge. And he kind of said, you know, I think you'll find that all the stuff he's done has prepared this for this this next step in your career. Uh, I, I kind of feel like that with uh, what I've done is saying, what's the look, there are a lot of guys and kind of go out there uh, and uh, and work dope and do that. But uh, for me, in terms of just uh, I've, I've kind of danced in both worlds. I've, I've been an, a narcotics agent for our, our agency for several years. I've been a lawyer kind of they're, they're They're entirely different worlds. I don't know that each one fully respects the challenges the other faces i kind of joke I'm, I'm bilingual and can and can uh, deal in both those worlds but uh it, it's it is uh something that i that i i very much at, at this point in my life i i've very much believe uh in uh in public safety it's a it's essential function uh 
And I, th- I think uh, the, the devastating things that uh, drugs and the tolerance of drugs is, is uh, causing, with even with the child abuse and things like that. And so we have to have the next generation of, of, of officers, and uh, we need to counter the narratives because, uh, you know, cops are just kind of mission-driven, which is good. I mean, that's who you want. They go out there, hear the rules, we're going to go play the game. We're not in the propaganda. We don't do that. And uh, I, th- I think we, we have... We're behind in messaging the importance. I mean, it's, it should be a home game for us. We have the knowledge, the facts are on our side. That's what we do. But uh, hey, you know, you just brought up something, and I saw it on a Twitter thread, and and I thought it was a great way to respond because somebody's trying to put out some misinformation, Steve, on what was going on on in Atlanta. Somebody put out a picture and said, "Hey, look, these um, these cops, and they were all SWAT team guys. You could tell they're all jocked up and everything." Oh. Where's the footage? Because all of these guys that were involved in the raid are wearing body cameras. You can see the Axon body cameras on there. Georgia Bureau of Investigation, who's handling the investigation, didn't sit back and let it perpetuate. They actually went into the Twitter thread and said, this picture is false. These folks are not involved. They were nowhere near the scene. You know, it, it, the, but the problem is if it's if it's with social media and with the the, the velocity of media that's coming out, you put out a, a, a misinformation like that. It then becomes fact. And now you're trying to, in people's mind, change facts as opposed to dis- disillusion them of this misinformation they are in possession of. Just don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. That's what this all comes down to. Well, and I, I'll tell you what I found is, is like, it, look, if you are in, uh, uh, in, in law enforcement, then, I mean, we deal in facts. I mean, if, if you embellish facts on a search warrant, you can get hammered with, with with a Frank's challenge, which is a challenge. Say you you know you had reckless disregard for the truth. You can lose the case if you are ever found to have been dishonest. Uh, we call it Giglio, and that's that's basically a court case about uh, being able to impeach the officer. So was was there a movie made about that called American Giglio? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I'll be I'll here apologize, all week. Thank Brian. you very much. <laughs> I apologize. By the way, tell we used the term. Tell everybody what uh, giglio because that's something that's not relatively new, but it's new yeah, compared it's, to when guys like Murph and I started. Yeah. So uh, giglio, it, it's it's basically a, a, we the term is used in our profession to say, are you giglio impaired? Are you giglio dirty? Meaning, is there any information in your background showing you have any uh, instances of being dishonest and uh now giglio itself is it's just about you should be able to impeach constitutionally a, a a defendant should be able to impeach a witness against him uh in fact giglio itself i think was uh, uh dealt with uh whether an informant got payments and so it, again if, if you have been uh under the evidence code federally and almost it's been adopted in most states if uh you have a instance of dishonesty in your professional capacity that could be used to uh impeach your credibility like if you were found to have uh, to have lied in a report like uh well you could say uh if you on the stand the officer could say well uh agent murphy are you're saying right now that uh, my client did this yes would you ever lie about that no have you been found to lie in a report to cover up a mistake to make it got whatever it might be and that could be a proper impeachment question so like in my current agency it's because we have uh doj's giglio policies a little bit more strict than actually the law is so it, uh, so if you're giglio impaired it's an essential job function for us i mean it's a four cause termination just asked mark Furman in the oj trial when f lee bailey caught him in a huge lie now if he admitted it, it probably would have been bad. But the fact he outright lied about it and then they brought in audio tapes of him 
using racial epithets to describe people that, that that's one of the biggest things that probably everything he did was probably credible but the fact that he was not credible about whether or not he had said the n-word is what impacted i think that case to a huge degree well you know what i mean if our public servants we've given them special powers special authorities they should be held to a higher degree and you i don't know if you've heard this brian but we say this continuously on here on game of crimes is nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop you've got to maintain your integrity if the public can't trust you you need to get out of the possession the profession well and 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 uh, yeah so we should probably make, make clear i none of us have everyone i know in law enforcement we know that's the rule i mean that that's fine we, we absolutely accept the fact we look people's liberty is at stake and us doing it the right way and us being honest and doing it again that's what separates us from them and that's fine I, that's it, it it makes it more difficult but that's the that's the only way uh, uh, to do it. And so, uh, you know, I don't, th- there's no concern with that. And, and look, you're, that's exactly right. I mean, th- that, uh, because of my position, I've been involved in several, uh, c- cases involving, I, I say a, a corrupt officer and officer committee crimes, I'd say would corrupt. Now, uh, the vast majority, um, because I worked on a narcotics bureau, it'd be an officer that, uh, may have got a man got uh, addicted to pills, does prescription fraud, but that's just, that's fine. That's going to be career ending, uh, when those things happen. Uh, so there are times it involves kind of, uh, corruption, but I'll tell you, you want to see cops get energized and, and put their energy is it is on, uh, someone, uh, that actually engages in that and, and they'll expose it, but we do that. And, and again, uh, you know, the, the, the general public doesn't see that, but the intolerance and how drop everything, we're going to get on this, uh, when there is a potential of a uh, corrupt police officer, it can have, it can have no place, uh, we do. And so, uh, they don't see that. And that's the, uh, and again, it's very few professions have a vigorous process like law enforcement does. In other words, if you're a doctor and you screw up on a surgery, you're still you're still operating the next day. Somebody might sue you years down the road, right? Um, or the hospital has to take action. All you got to do is watch a couple of the documentaries to see what folks have gotten away with. Dentists, teachers, you know, even even uh, you know uh, some of the profession politicians. My God, can you imagine if the same rigorous process was applied to politicians as it is law enforcement? Half the Congress would be out on suspension right now, pending investigation. Well, look, this guy in New York that just got reelected up there. He lied about everything, and they put him on committees. All oh, that and, George Santos. Yeah, I mean, oh what, a mor- what a moron. Uh, yeah, folks, as you can see, too, we don't care politically. If you're a moron, you're a moron. There is no—nobody has an exclusive lock on being a moron. Uh, no. It crosses party lines for sure. <laughs> well, what is it? Einstein said one time, he said, there's only two things that are infinite, the universe and stupidity, and I'm not so sure about the universe. <laughs> so, uh, right. hey, well, let's, this is a great thing. Let's, let's yeah. talk this, about this in the light of, because I think early on you said you did this for eight years, right? When you first got out of law school? Yeah, my, my first stint as a, yeah, I did eight years as a prosecutor and drug prosecutor for seven of that. So, but, but that was right out of, that was your first job, right? Correct. That was coming out of law school? Yes. Okay. Let's. Because we're going to talk about a couple cases here, these cases that we want to talk about, um, the serial rapist and the the young girl, the Amber Alert, where did that occur in your career, during this time or at a later time? Because we want to kind of keep things chronologically in order. Sure. This, the, the serial rapist happened uh, actually when I was in the DA's office that first eight years. 
Let's talk about that then, because um, that is an interesting case for one thing. The other thing, too, folks, we'll pimp out his book, which you were kind enough to send to me. Thank you very much. It's called Injustice for All, The Familiar Fallacies of Criminal Justice Reform by Brian Server. I'm assuming that we can find this, uh, you know, uh, Amazon, good yeah. places like yeah. that, right? Amazon, Kindle, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, yeah, all those places. So um, I've got it here. Thank you for the inscription, too. Um, I don't do anything anymore. I just run my mouth. Uh, it's guys like you and other folks who are still out there doing the mission of public safety. But just to even look, when you listen to some of the chapters, the reason I'm saying that, um, when you look at just some of the chapters and what you talk about, we've got things like the purpose of the state, the evolution of small government and libertarian thought, the wicked among us, enforcement in the small government libertarian, um, the experience of legalizing marijuana. I think that's you guys need to read that uh, history, lesson in history. Where did the meth lab go? The lack of alternatives and conclusion, the decline is accelerating. I mean, these are all things that kind of, if uh, almost anybody involved in your job could almost write a similar book. In other words, you see these things over and over again. So let's talk about during this eight years. Um, you said you were uh, drug crimes all but for one year that it was seven years you were doing drug offenses. Uh -huh. Then how did you get a serial rapist case? Well, so um, there was a uh, my my boss at the time, the DA uh, Mark Gibson, had uh, we were really tight. He got me into John Douglas's books, and uh, uh, Douglas he wasn't even as popular as he is now, but he had written his first one was Mind Hunter. Uh, I'd written. Uh, which is kind of outlines how uh, profiling and, and it kind of tell people, you know, it, it's been in most of our our uh, our careers, but the our, uh, uh, criminal profiling as a discipline is very new. Uh, Douglas kind of came into that was just studying uh, to get his uh, an FBI agent studying uh, some serial offenders and found all of these consistent traits that was able to put together a package as to how serial offenders, especially uh, uh, sex, uh, sex offenders, what they uh, had done. And I was fascinated by his books. Have you read William Ressler too? Uh, I have not. You need to read. So William Ressler is kind of the more analytical scientific counterpart uh, to John Douglas. So he was one of the original members. In fact, a lot of the stuff he founded around sexual deviancy and things like that are part of the penultimate piece of doing serial crime profiling um, along with Douglas, too. So you got to read William Ressler, too. Okay. Yeah, I will definitely do that. Uh, and so there's, and I'll tell you, uh, Mindhunters is, is fascinating. Uh, Douglas has a book called Anatomy of a Motive, which is an entire book that basically uh, says that no one does something for no reason. You don't, you don't just find yourself walking, uh, you know, uh, one state away at three in the morning. What are you doing? Nothing. I mean, uh, and, and so I honestly think that if you're going to be an investigator or a prosecutor, if you think of that, it's a way to kind of examine that. So, uh, uh, so I'd, I'd read those books, but just loved them. And so, uh, we had a, the way we did misdemeanors up there was we just did them once we they just kind of got in the way we had five prosecutors the the uh, whole courthouse the judges the defense lawyers on the contract once one friday a month we just spent all time on misdemeanors and we didn't mess with them any other time we'd focus on everything else and so what we'd done is whoever had filed a case and anyone could make a recommendation deal with the defendant the defense lawyer just try to clean out as much as we could on that one friday a month so out of all those misdemeanors uh how many of them went to trial 
I mean, percentage-wise, less than one percent. Oh gosh, less. There, there's probably two or three times the misdemeanors compared to fe- felonies, and that the they probably go to trial probably one tenth the rate. I mean, for every, uh, I would say that the trial rate is probably ten percent compared to felonies uh, across the board, and probably even more. I mean, it's just rare that a misdemeanor goes to trial. And so, uh, so anyway, this guy comes. So I just picked. I did. I did not file this case, and so. A lot of guys represent themselves, and we just make some recommendation, get it closed out, and do this. Well, I come in, and I'd never read anything about the, this case. Someone else had, had screened it and filed it, and I look at the report. And essentially, this guy had uh, was uh, walking around Ponca City, which is our, our biggest town, at 3 in the morning in the summer in a neighborhood. He had white cotton gloves on. Uh, the cops go and ped check him like, what are you doing? And he's got duct tape. He's got no explanation as to why he's there. He's got, uh, I'm sorry, he's got athletic tape uh, in his pocket, uh, bandana. Uh, he's got a, a knife. I think he even had a, a gun on him, um, some binoculars and these gloves. And they're like, okay, normally they would send that charge to the city. He had a little bit of weed on him and this uh, carrying a weapon, which at the time uh, was, uh, was illegal without having a concealed carry. So, but they just thought he was weird. They're going to put him at, at, at a, a court of record. They sent him up to, uh, to uh, the district court. And if you, if you look at profiling, well, there's one thing with sexual offenders, uh, serial rapists, they, they will have a rape kit. And that kit is, is specific to them, what they use every time uh, to do the rape. And so this clearly was a rape kit. And again, you kind of go back to Douglas, the anatomy of a motive. I mean, he's like, he, what are you doing? Nothing. Well, bullshit. You're, you're there doing something. And they couldn't find his car. And so they just kind of took him to jail. And so I'm talking to the guy and I said, man, wh- where are you from? And at the time he said he worked on like one of Ted Turner's Buffalo ranches up somewhere in Kansas, actually. So, uh, well, you know, Morgan, one of those Kansas perverts coming down to Oklahoma. Figures. And he's figure. not a Kansas pervert. He's an Oklahoma pervert that got lost and was probably trying to have relations with the buffalo in Kansas. That's what happened. And we kicked his ass back to Oklahoma. <laughs> he was from Kansas. And uh, and so, but he had no connection to Ponca City at all. And I'm like, what are you doing down here while well, I was just stretching my legs? Like, from what? Well, I went, I went fishing out at a lake out there, and I just was, I got out and stretched my legs on my way back to Kansas, like three and a half hours away. And, and where he was was nowhere on the route. Uh, well, that's three and a half hours driving, right. not walking. Yeah. And, and well, and, and, he, and he said his car was parked somewhere, and he was out just on a walk, and it's just BS. Well, another thing about serial offenders is, is 100%, they always begin their their crimes, whether it's arson, uh, a serial murderer, a serial sexual offender, they always begin in their comfort zone, which it could be where they grew up. It could be where they currently live. And it's just a natural tendency. If you're going to go start committing crimes, you're going to go to where you're familiar. And only when they get that kind of skill and act skill, they get away with it. They, they learn from it. Then do they go mobile and go interstate? And that's one of the reasons it's hard to catch serial offenders is, is once they are identified as a serial offender, they're out of their own geographical area. And so I just knew there's, there's no way this dude's got a rape kit. He's had no connection to Oklahoma at all. And, uh, which means he's, he's done it before. I mean, there's, and, and he had no arrest record ever. And so, so anyway, I started talking to the guy 
And I said, what are you doing? He's, he's bullshitting me as to what he's doing. And, uh, you know, one of the things Douglas talks about in his books is, is once he began to interview these serial uh, offenders in prison, and he would say, you know, you probably had problems with, with your mother growing up. You don't relate to women. You go through all these things. These, these guys would just be like, wow, you can get inside my mind. And I'll tell you, that, that thing I've used in... And basically interviewing people, it could be drug couriers, it could be a snitch. If, if you understand what, uh, what someone's thinking, it's a lot easier to have a conversation with them. So I just kind of said, look, man, I, I know for a fact you are walking around here with this, uh, with this rape kit. I know you did, it did just kind of happen. I'm not going to say you were doing anything, but you need to be honest with me. What's going on? You didn't do anything, but don't tell me you're just stretching your legs, walking around with a rape kit. And then he starts just talking to me and he said um well i was uh i was looking looking for an opportunity but i wouldn't do it and i'm like oh hell he's gonna freaking well, tell that's me the this first lie yeah yeah well but he tells that's me like saying i never inhaled well that was enough <laughs> and so so he says that so i uh i i, I faked i mean it's like holy crap i didn't know this is going to happen so i i told him that i needed to uh i need to go tell the judge i, I made up some excuse to step out got a recorder and, and i brought back in a file and i had it in there so i could i could record everything he was saying and he begins this long conversation about his how he uh he was 43 years old uh women never looked at, looked at him as a protector quick question before you get into that and it's actually a legal issue oklahoma one-party consent state yes yeah all right are you under any, from a legal standpoint, were you under any obligation to do anything? I mean, you didn't have no. to tell them squat, right? Correct. They can record in one party consent fully. It's, uh, well, we don't have any laws that restrict our recordings that they have in other states. We just comply with Title III and our federal law, which one party consent's fine. I just got that out there so people didn't think, hey, you're, it's in, they, they use the word entrapment correctly and everything else, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, they, yeah. No one knows what entrapment is. Um, and so, so he begins, we had this long conversation and he begins to tell me how, uh, women have never viewed him as a protector. They don't like him. Uh, and, uh, he fantasize. And right there you go. What has he got? He's got a lot of sexual inadequacies that he's trying to compensate for. And he told me, he said that he is, uh, he said that, uh, he, he would never say rape. He would always call it forced sex. And he said, uh, he started to fantasize about forced sex because it seemed more real because he never thought he'd ever have real sex. I uh, tried to pick up a hooker one time in Wichita. He was uh, couldn't get it up, and he said, that's just par for the course for me. And so he'd always fantasize about forced sex. And you know who that sounds like too? About a lot about every sexual uh, sexual offender in Douglas writes about. Well, you said Wichita, right? BTK Dennis Rader. Yeah, that's right. That's he's out of there. Um, and uh, and so he goes through all this, and he, and he tells me he's even he even mentioned a, a swimming beach. It's actually in our our district that he had he actually fantasized about abducting a girl from, but her mom was there when she kind of went up to the bathroom. But he he didn't think he'd do it. He was just thinking about it because it's all fantasies. Well, again, he's going mobile, which means he's done that. So, um, uh, but just a second, it may be fantasy, but like you said, but he's got physical. And he's got physical things that are right. I mean, he's got the rape kit. He's got the duct tape. He's got the gloves. He's got everything. Yeah, he said it was a fantasy. That's bullshit. He was actually looking to go rape somebody. I mean, serial offenders are very patient. They they wait for the right opportunity. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, what I'm saying, that's what he's saying. He's fantasizing about it. He wouldn't take that was 
complete BS. Uh, I mean, he, he got the equipment uh, to do it. So uh, while this is going on, uh, he, had, he had a little bit of weed on him. So uh, we called a, uh, uh, while we we're just talking to him, they call the drug dog, find out where his truck is. Uh, they call the drug dog up there. It alerts while I'm talking to him. They do a search, find a little bit of weed and, and the entire exact same rape kit in his truck that he had on him uh, at that time. Hey, now, did they ever find his vehicle that night when they arrested him? They did not. Nope. Didn't, they never knew where it was. So who, knew, who knows how far he was walking to try to find that, but they never found his vehicle. And so, um, so uh, they, they do that. I uh, go to the judge, and, uh, and so there's a crime in Oklahoma called carrying a weapon with intent to injure which is a felony. And so I went and had somebody write out an affidavit and we uh, did a warrantless arrest on him to keep him in jail right there before it went back to Kansas uh, for carrying weapon with intent to injure because we were going to... Can you say which town in Kansas he was from? Uh, okay. He, at the time, he was living in his... Uh, uh, up on the Buffalo Ranch, wherever Turner's Buffalo Ranch was, but where he had first up with the where he went to, he's from Mark City, actually. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, definitely in, uh, southeast Kansas. Yeah, which is just which is north of us a little bit, and uh, and so now I don't think I knew that at the time. Uh, I, I learned it later. I don't think he ever upped. He was from the Ark City area, uh, and so uh, so anyway, we, we do that. Uh, get him in jail. He's pissed, obviously, like, I don't care. Uh, he's pissed. Oh, and he had, he had a speech impediment as well, which a lot of the, you know, a lot of serial offenders will have a, a, a speech impediment. So we sent out a teletype to surrounding states of unsolved rapes involving tape with binding. That's on a Friday. This is probably like four or five. It's like the almost courthouse is closed by this time Friday when this happens. And first thing Monday, a detective from Ark City, Kansas, called called our sheriff's office. who said, you can talk to this this uh, prosecutor and just said, uh, I have a, uh, uh, and I'd recorded it. And uh, and so this detective uh, said, hey, I, this sounds exactly like an unsolved sexual assault. I've got the guy broke in and raped the girl. He had a bandana on, put duct tape on her, uh, wrapped up in duct tape. Um and she pulled his bandana down during the assault and got a look at his face. And she looked at so many lineups they couldn't because he wasn't living in Ark City. And uh, and so he said, "What is your? How does he talk? Do you hear anything in his voice?" And I said, well, "I've got it recorded, but I would just say he talks like Elmer Fudd." And uh, and so he said, "Well, my girl, who's more articulate than me, he said, well, my victim says that he can't say his R's when he when he was talking to her." And I go back and I, that's ex- what it was. He goes, I walk on the ranch and that's kind of his, his speech impediment. Be, be very, very quiet while hunting rabbits. Right. That's, <laughs> and, and again, she said, you know, I'm saying Elmer Fudd and she's got to, you know, can't say his R's. So he, they get the mugshot. They don't, there's no, they get the, uh, I don't think actually that time DL photos are even all online that you, you have to you know, send off for it. They get his mugshot. Uh, send it up there. They do a, a photo lineup, and this girl had looked at him, had looked at lineups, you know, dozens. Says, "I'm gonna," said, "I'm gonna throw up." That's him, and pointed him right out. And so, uh, so they walked through a warrant for the sexual assault on him, and uh, uh, and you know, extradited him up there, uh, up into Kansas. Another thing I'll tell you in his, uh, and I learned this from the detective that I've kept in contact with, and in his car, there were a lot of like a 
day passes. He was going to uh, lakes and places where uh, women and children worked. Uh, he was kind of stalking, going around, looking at day passes at, at lakes and parks. Uh, going in there, uh, they found uh, he was going uh, like Walmarts. I think somewhere like in northwest Oklahoma, he had kind of picked some victims, some weird incidents. I don't know how they tracked him to Walmart. And so, uh, again, he's just one of those patient predatory sex offenders. So uh, I ended up kind of emailing John Douglas and saying, hey, thanks, I appreciate it. And he called me back and said, hey, I want to talk to you. And so we had this long conversation about because he's always fascinated why, you know, why uh, serial predators. Cause this guy told me he had a counselor. He never told anybody this. And I'm like, well, why are you telling me? I'm just kind of curious. And he said, well, I, no one's really kind of never asked. And I've just, you know, you've asked and I'll tell you about it. Cause he was even seeing a, a therapist and had not mentioned any of these kind of, uh, proclivities that he had. Was this guy on the radar anywhere? Had he been arrested no. or showed up anything? No. In fact, I remember when, when Douglas called, he said, were there any kind of like nuisance crimes, breaking and entering is kind of the, the underwear theft stuff they do. The was precursor the, right. stuff. So yeah. He, yeah, he had not got any of those. So he'd evaded the detection on, on all of those. No criminal history at all. Do you know how many cases were able to tie to this guy? Just one or were there more than one? I, I know there was that one. I know there were multiple attempts of things he had done uh, because, but he's like, uh, like a lot of predators. They kind of wait for the perfect opportunity. And uh, I know there was, some, there was uh, something at a Walmart. I think it was like Woodward, which is in Northwest Oklahoma. Uh, some other things they'd done. We saw, I mean, he told me about this uh, being at that uh, swimming beach. And the, if you, I know where this place, it's actually in our county, uh, that, uh, in fact, that's the lake he said he was fishing in whenever he was, uh, stretching his legs, uh, that the beach is so much lower than like within where the parking lot is just for the water level. And it's a big staircase and you can't see the bathrooms from down there at the beach. And he was, he told me he thought about if he could kidnap this young girl and fantasize about it. But I think her mom came up the stairs. He decided not to. So, uh, you know, they're just, uh, th again, there may be others, but that I know that's the ones they, they had tied to him on that. And what was his, uh, uh, the outcome of his trial or conviction? He, he was convicted. I, oh gosh, that was up there in Kansas. I, I don't know, Murph. Uh, well, it's public record, right? Yes. Huh? Yeah. Ro What's his name? Roger well, Hadorn, H-A-D-O-R-N. Let's just hope he never gets out. And let's yeah, hope I, he's I, th I think, I think he's gotten out. Cause I look, I, I, at one point I looked it up years later and I think he was already out. And so I don't know. Unbelievable. Uh, um, he, he may be in, uh, yeah, he, Roger Hugh Hadorn, uh, he is a registered sex offender in Goita, Goita Springs, Kansas. So, um, and also was living in Ark city. Uh, yeah, that's where he, he was from Ark City. And uh, I think I think his his uh, his family had uh, was there, grew up. So it's kind of that was kind of his comfort zone where to start in. But I'll, but I'll, speaking, I'll tell, I was you tell you, speaking of that, I pulled up. Uh, it's called the Z Bar Ranch in Kansas. I didn't realize Ted Turner had that. It is a forty two thousand uh, acre property located in South Central Kansas along the Salt Fork of the Arkansas. It's not Arkansas River, Murph. It's the Arkansas River when you're from Kansas. <laughs> yeah. The state's called Arkansas, uh, so what are you talking about? Yeah, there's a state called <laughs> yeah. Arkansas, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Z-Bar Ranch. Uh, I tell you, it's uh, amazing. I didn't realize that was out there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm surprised he still, I thought Turner set sold some of those. He had a few buffalo ranches. I don't know if he still owns it now. You want to see where he's got, just real quick aside here, it, where it shows, this is the webpage it pulled up. He's got four places in Argentina, one place in Kansas, three places in Montana, one, two, three, four, five places in Nebraska, three in New Mexico, and two in South Dakota. 
that's why you can't find him anywhere. Hey, just to get back to this letter that that you wrote to uh, John Douglas, and then he did he include this his response in a book, the the material you sent us. So he called and asked if he could. Uh, he actually published it in an online article, and uh, and and he was catching crap. I mean, Mindhunter wasn't that old when this happened. I mean, it might have been. 10 years, you know, eight years old or so. But he was catching crap from people saying, hey, you're telling trade secrets. This is sources and methods. You're you're going to let these people know how oh, to uh, how to uh, uh, evade that. And so he, he wanted to, to to put this story in an article to say, this is why I, if we arm police officers, people, citizens with knowledge, then uh, this is what can happen. And he said, this guy read the book and, and you could, you could uh, uh, find that. So, so that was kind of his, uh, uh, his premise. And so, yeah, but you glossed over one thing though, out of that second rape kit, because this dude said he hasn't had sex in 20 years, but yet what did you find in the second rape kit? Oh yeah. He had uh, two condoms in his truck. Which so uh, why would you need condoms yeah. if uh, you can't get it up? And and, and why would you need condoms if you said you you know you will never have traditional sex? I mean that's what he said. He said I know I'll never have sex. Well, that's why you have the condoms. He'll never have traditional sex. He'll have forced sex because the force, the use of force, is the only way he can get excited, um, and you know uh, get his little rocks off. Well, uh, what I was saying, what I was getting to here is is that in his summation after he uh, posts your letter in here. He's, he stresses five points that he's been trying to get across to investigators, you know, and it's, I love the fact that, you know, this is all coming together. This is, this is mostly common sense if you've been investigating crimes for a while, but it never hurts to have a refresher like this. And it's, uh, you know, follow, so you see something sp- uh, suspicious, follow it through. Be careful when you're conducting your investigations. Don't give up the information. They're supposed to tell you. You're not supposed to tell them anything. Uh, don't let the suspect spook you, you know, the, like you were talking about seeing the photographs with the meat cleaver. And so, you know, things like that. The fourth was, uh, you gotta be a good listener, you know, and that's something Morgan needs to work on. We're, we're working on, we're trying to get him counseling on that. I'm a tremendous listener. And, and then the fifth is sometimes you have to go beyond the call of duty. You, you've got to think, you know, this is cliche to say it. You got to think outside the box because the criminals do. I love it. I, this is fantastic. I, all investigators should should check all this out. You know, if you're investigating crimes, you need to be aware of this. And you were saying that too, Brian. You're working with interdiction units. One of the key things with interdiction units, when we started doing too, you got to look beyond the traffic stop. The traffic stop is only a reason for a contact. What's beyond the contact? And to your point, what's your purpose for being here? Largest cash seizure that I ever got, and it was the largest cash seizure in the state at the time, all came from my ask the guys just questions. What are you doing here? None of them got their story straight. None of them. In fact, one guy said, I'm here to visit my aunt. What's your aunt's name? Oh, I don't remember. I just know she's in the hospital. Gee, what a kind, yeah. caring, concerned, <laughs> you know, nephew you are. Well, and that kind of goes back to, again, like uh, Douglas's book, Anatomy of a Motive. If you say you can ask about travel plans, what are you doing? And, and when you do thousands of traffic stops, you see um, uh, what, you know, you'll see the normal traffic patterns and if someone's like where are you going well i'm just uh you know i I don't have a job okay you're not you're not employed no so what are you doing i'm just taking a vacation like really is that (laughs) that makes sense how do you take a vacation with no job and that and he's like okay or the you know the thing is they they give some and they're they're they've got good tricks i mean i'm you know just like the 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 one of the people saying oh i do i i I lay tile like can i see your hands they got these nice manicured soft hands like dude you are not a freaking laborer i mean they just they always say they're in construction and uh, and so it's, but, but that's just knowing that you don't do something for, for, uh, no reason. And if you understand what somebody's doing, 
And so uh, that, that, and look, I've always loved interviews. I, I just, that's probably been the thing I enjoy the most. If we did operations, I would ask to do, he's my deal. I'd say, look, can you do search? I'm going to talk to the guy. I think that's so important. But, uh, you know, there was, uh, and I was actually still, a, I was still an agency attorney at the time. I wasn't yet an investigator in this. I don't know. It was an interdiction stop. I don't know, 20,000. It's almost nothing. I mean, you know, it's a small amount, but mm-hmm. clearly drug money, mm-hmm. which is funny. Th- those are the ones people fight over. Not, you know, oh, half a million. Oh, that's not mine in, yeah. the, you know, in the trunk of the car. Don't know how but I you got get the, small, the smaller amounts, which I think that's probably because people are more amateur or they may have, so that may actually be part of their money, but they just, it's, you, those are the ones we kind of fight over. But this guy was just saying, that's my money and you guys are racial profiling me and wouldn't give it up. And they's like, I don't know. And so I just went in there and, and I just sat down, uh, uh, before we cut the guy loose. And I said, uh, and again, it's just back to that. If you understand what they're doing. And I just said, look, dude, I don't want you to say anything. I know what you're doing that you're thinking to yourself that when you go report to them, the money got taken, they're going to say you pinched it. You stole it. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to threaten your family. These guys do this all the time. We're going to give you a receipt. Uh, I'll give you, you know, you can have, have, have my card. Uh, and we're going to give you a receipt. And when you show them that, uh, that you actually didn't steal the money and you got taken loose and then, and you got, they're going to see that like a, a forfeiture case is filed. They'll do, they'll know you didn't rat them out. And so he, he just like shut, he just, you know, he's, I start watering. He goes, I think they're going to kill my family. And I said, I get that man, but here's the thing. I know you're just hired. I, I know you're not a total shit bag that does this all the time. That's why you're freaking scared and acting like a fool and telling this stupid ass story. A, a pro doesn't do that. And if you, and I get that. And so he said, yes, sir, I'll sign it. And so and I, I went, walk through how that'll happen being a courier. And then he kind of, and again, it's just understanding what they're thinking. And if you do that, tell them what that is and then see and then you can also understand why they're acting the way they're uh they're doing then that's uh i I think that is one of the most beneficial that's whether you're kind of talking to an informant i mean all the guys i know they're good at interviewing that they're they don't do this kind of you know movie coming in hot no that's what we've always said you don't you don't get somebody look you've done death penalty cases right you don't get admissions in death penalty cases by telling give me that information or you're going to get the needle so if i tell you i'm going to get the needle i mean please it's like it's like you say the movie stuff but it goes back to point number two conduct interrogations carefully you know you don't you don't beat it out of people but the point about it is what you did is he had a need to tell the truth. He just didn't know how to tell the truth. And you gave him a way, A, to save face, B, not really admit anything, but at the same time, he did admit it. And C, you created a strong, very strong forfeiture case because he gave you admissions against interest. They're going to kill me. You know, by the way, if you were, dude, if you were like top tier, you wouldn't be running 20,000. This was, this was a training run. Well, and that's, and that's just where, again, 10 and say, look, and, and if, and it's, it's to, it's to put him at ease, but it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's accurate. Say, look, dude, I, I know you're not a big time international, uh, you know, interstate drug runner because of two things. One, this money ain't shit. And number two, if you were, you wouldn't be driving. You're the broke dick dumbass. They have to do this. So I were those, get that. Were those your exact words, Brian? Probably so. I mean, I, well, and, and again, not being disrespectful, but you know how it is. You, you, you know, you tell them that. You got to call it. And, and you do that. And so, and, and, and again, if, if you respect them and, uh, and, uh, you know, and then it's, it's like, almost like he's relieved. Like you guys know, I'm not some, some, uh, major trafficker. And then, and understanding that's, I'll tell you, like with Hador, I mean, he had never told any, and once he began to talk, he had never told anybody how it felt to be him. 
and and uh and and so he I, he, I say enjoyed, he was certainly comfortable and wanted to keep talking about his whole life. Women don't like me. And, uh, and he wasn't, and he wasn't, it wasn't like he was like, you know, uh, just getting upset doing that. It was a very calm, like, uh, I don't think anyone had ever talked to him. And so again, this guy had victimized this young lady looking to do it to anybody. He would kidnap a young girl and do that if he could get away with it. Uh, so I have to feign understanding and respect to him because no one had ever done that to him ever. And like I said, he was, he was very pissed when I said, look, dude, you're going to jail. And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't like a transition, like uh, when and just said, Hey, you freaking child, you know, you raping piece of shit. I mean, I just, I mean, again, he'd been respectful that uh, he hadn't been. And so I just was, was matter of fact, he was upset. I think he, because he said, I've been telling you this and now you're putting me in jail. Uh, but that he never had a chance to uh, talk to somebody. And I, I guarantee you, you guys have seen that, Steve. When you, you know, it's like when you're talking to an informant. If, if, they, if they're trying to tell you, hey, I'm not that bad a guy, like, okay, stop, stop, cut the shit, okay, dude. If you don't know big dope dealers, you're of no use. Your information is your currency. So, and then you kind of see them break and like, okay. And then, then they get excited, start talking and doing this, but they have to be relaxed. And you have to say, and, and again, it's just, calling their crap saying dude you are trying to convince me you are not a major player okay number one people have lied to me my whole career number two you understand if you don't know anybody you ain't worth a shit to us so why don't you just just relax start over let's tell let's tell the truth and then you'll help yourself out man that's what we're trying to do is is put you in a position where, where you can do this because there are people worse than you and I, that just seems to work and this this is this is exactly you know this sounds almost like the car salesman help me help you what do i have to do to put you into this car today but that's exactly what you're doing by the way i misspoke earlier i said william wrestler i met roy hazelwood because i'm looking over at the books right here dark dreams roy hazelwood and stephen um McDonald or Michaud, it was guy co wrote with him because right below that I have the Manhunters book. Right below that I have the Geographical Profiling uh, by Kim Rosso. It, yeah, but uh, I'm sorry, Roy Hazelwood really kind of did the whole thing around sexual stuff. So hey, but you know that's a great way to bring this to a close. So uh, sorry about that. I almost made it sound like it's a closing argument for a case. Now that brings that case to a close. So we've had rebuttal, sir, rebuttal, sir, rebuttal, rebuttal, whatever they call it now. And so the case in chief is over, right? But, you know, that's Murph and I were, were talking during a break. It's like, this is good stuff because I think it, what you did too is you approached it, number one, from a factual standpoint. So you took the emotion out of it. You said, here's the study by BJS, Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is part of the Department of Justice. I actually used BJS statistics when I did some work on uh, the sniper case and showing how many people had contact, et cetera. A lot of good stuff comes from out of them. But but it's also the practical, you know, Midwest people, it's kind of, you got, you got to be practical. There's no fancy stuff. It's just like, um, you do what works, you quit doing what doesn't work. And then, but the whole thing about, we're going to talk about this too, about the drug, uh, the legalization of marijuana and stuff. So we're going to get into all of that, but we just had during our break, right? You guys don't probably don't even know when we broke. Maybe you did. We had Wayne Stinnett in here, who was the person responsible for getting us introduced to you and some other folks. And he just cornered you about something. And then you made an interesting tie-in because the next case we want to talk about is a kidnapping story. Um, that he was involved with. But before we get there, now, where did this kidnapping case happen? During your eight years there or after you went and became an agent? No, uh, this was when I was uh, an agent and then when I was actually signed in Tulsa. So let's, before we get there, then let's kind of set the stage. So you did this for eight years. Um, what made you decide to say, hey, look, um, 
I like being a lawyer, but I want to be a real cop now. So um, at that time, I'd, I've been a drug prosecutor. And there's not a lot of people that do drug prosecution. So I got to know the people at the State Narcotics Bureau and the, the general what, counsel. What do you mean, why were there not a lot of people to do it? Just simply because there's not enough people or not enough people were interested? You know, it, I would just say that that there's there's just a handful of people that are full-time drug prosecutors. I mean, there's just not that many uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, and I was uh, involved with our state association. I was uh, teaching there. And so the director and uh, then general counsel asked me to come work uh, at the at the bureau in the legal division, which is a, a different step. I mean, I, I went from a task force of like five to a task force of 65. And uh, then we had a wiretap unit. So I was the supervising attorney on wires and just kind of that uh, next thing uh, to do. So so I was in the bureau in the legal division for uh, three years, moved to Oklahoma City. And, hey, quick question. Uh -huh. You said you did wires. Yeah. Uh, and Murph will appreciate this. Would you rather do wires at the state level or wires at the federal <laughs> level? <laughs> state level. Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> if, if nothing else, just we don't have to have approval at D.C. Uh, to go up. So, uh, you know, we one time had a an assistant D.A. that was in, involved in some stuff. And, you know, we walked a wiretap through my boss and I and drafted the app order affidavit, called the, the presiding judge, the appellate court. The attorney general has to sign off on it. We got that done in 48 hours uh, to go up on a wire. In 48 hours, more of those guys would still be, they wouldn't even be done collecting documentation. Oh, we can even write the affidavit. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.